Democrats, Democrats. I'm sorry that you have not followed the argument. The majority of the argument we're having is not relevant. Yes, for the majority of human history, uh, you know, most people uh, had, um, you know, we're, we're living under. The argument we are having at the moment is the lack of workers' co-ops in a modern society is evidence against your idea of workers' co-ops. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last part. The argument you're having at the moment, you're completely missing the argument. The argument we're having at the moment is whether you can dismiss the lack of workers' co-ops as evidence on the grounds that workers couldn't possibly raise the capital to start their own firms. And from that standpoint, it is relevant that current consumption levels are enormously higher than people lived on in the, in the past. And that therefore, people who are really dedicated to and willing to suffer for a few years in order to get a much better system could, many of them, raise the money. All right, my name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. Uh, I am joined as always uh, by my producer, Forrest. Uh, How's it going? Yeah, pretty, uh, you know, I'm pretty, uh, pretty decent. Had some uh, very uncomfortable dentistry earlier today. And uh, the uh, Iraq war this week is uh, officially, uh, officially old enough uh, to vote. Uh, you know, it's not quite old enough to buy a beer. The uh, Afghanistan is getting pretty close there. Yeah, the Iraq the Iraq war could enlist and go to Iraq at this point. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, Afghanistan's been there for a while. Um, so on Wednesday, uh, we're uh, we're going to be doing a stream. I think probably with uh, Branko Marketic, uh, the author of uh, Yesterday's Man: uh, Case Against Joe Biden, uh, on that 18 year anniversary of uh, Bush taking us to war in Iraq and with, of course, Joe Biden's enthusiastic support. We're not going to do a Biden update uh, in this episode because we're trying to keep a little shorter and also because, in a way, the Iraq war stream on Wednesday kind of is our Biden update yeah. uh, for, uh, for this week. I have, uh, a, I have a lot of, I have a lot of um, Biden lead up to Iraq clips that I've been searching through. So I think extending it into like an actual longer stream is probably for the best or else we'd just be watching half an hour of Biden clips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in a few minutes, we are going to uh, be joined by a cavalcade of guests to uh, talk to us about Medicare for All. Uh, so uh, the first two of those are going to be uh, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed and Micah Johnson, uh, who are the co-authors of this book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Uh, the second half, uh, going to be talking to Natalie Schur about you know some uh, some articles uh, that uh, that she's written for Jack Bed of the Nation about the strategy and politics around the fight for Medicare for all. Uh, whereas in the first half, we're going to probably focus more on policy and and the kind of wonky stuff. Although uh, Abdul and Mike are very good on policy uh, on the strategy and politics, and Natalie is very good on the policy and wonky stuff. So I'm sure there'll be some of each to the point to the point where they've they've interviewed each other. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> on those topics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but uh, first, I want to talk about um, a, uh, a different subject, uh, which is the uh, which is the subject of our uh, the cold open that you just listened to, uh, which was uh, from my debate uh, with uh, David Friedman, uh, son of, uh, of of Milton and Rose Friedman, uh, and uh, continuing in their their right wing libertarian uh, tradition, as you can tell from uh, from the clip. 
Uh, and uh, I did that uh, last week on uh, modern uh, the Modern Debate YouTube channel. Uh, we'll replay it on the Give Them an Argument YouTube channel sometime very soon. I'm not sure exactly, but within the next several days. Uh, but I just wanted to talk about what we're, you know, I think that clip gives you a pretty good sense uh, in terms of both tone and content of what that debate was like. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about that argument that he uh, that he's making because uh, if you you know if you talk to uh, to libertarians you know not just about the sort of um, uh, badly necessary baby steps like Medicare for all you know like what we're going to talk about you know, in a few minutes but uh, about uh, you know the more radical long term goals of the socialist left they'll tell you look you know sure you know workers control yeah you can have that like but uh, that's the you know if if that's so great right. Uh, why don't workers just uh, just bring it about already? Just you know, just start up, uh, just start up co-ops, uh, and a lot of the um, and there are a few different ways that you could respond to that, right? There's the you know what I spent um, you know one way is by pointing out that one shouldn't have to tell libertarians uh, that there's massive state intervention, you know, that we live in a uh, a very far from an actually free market. Uh, and so, you know, the idea that, you know, you can start up a little cooperative grocery store to compete with Walmart, you know, uh, in where Walmart uh, has the benefit of like squatting on land that the government probably took using eminent domain to, you know, to yeah. give them to build that superstore is a little ridiculous. Uh, and what I was emphasizing in that debate, and you could you could kind of hear in that clip, which which is that uh Friedman will say oh well no problem just like for a few years you know you just a bunch of people you know you just maybe pool your income and you know you cut your consumption in half you have a hippie standard of living that's how I put it for a few years while you get the co-op up and running and and then see you know workers control is so great now you've got it uh and of course, uh, what I was emphasizing in that interchange uh, was that uh, right now we live in a neoliberal hellscape uh, where uh, ordinary people, including many people we consider to be middle class, at least in the colloquial sense of that phrase, uh, are financially stressed all the time, worried about paying their bills, uh, that um, you know, worried about things like uh, like losing their health insurance or where their health insurance is going to come from, tied into the main subject of today's show. Um, and so the idea that it's not a big deal to just sort of cut your, uh, you know, consumption in half for a few years, uh, you know, strikes me as a little out of touch. And that's a lot of what we end up going back and forth about. But one of the reasons I wanted to, to do this little callback now, and, you know, again, people can see the whole debate sometime in the next several days when we post it on the channel. Uh, but one of the reasons that I wanted to do that callback is that, um, there is like a germ of truth in what um, in what he's arguing, but I think it's a little misleading, and I think it's it's worthwhile thinking about why it's misleading. So, the germ of truth is it's certainly true that there are people who make crazy sacrifices to their present day consumption to build businesses. That absolutely does happen, right? Um, but the question is whether it's realistic to think that on a large scale uh that could you know that could have that could be a way 
of like building up a uh, a big worker cooperative sector of the economy without the government having to, to uh, get involved, without needing social policy, you know, to uh, to promote that. Uh, and I think that to explain why not, it's important to make a couple of distinctions. One of which uh, has to do with um, what you know. What is so? One of the two distinctions is about what people's motives are. Right. So is the motive for doing this? what he was kind of suggesting in that clip we just watched, which was to build a better society. Uh, so is it ideological or is it just like personal material comfort? So if it's ideological, then I think this is pretty closely equivalent to um, the idea that you can achieve progressive goals by voting with your dollars, you know, that, uh, yeah. that you know, that you just buy some products and you don't buy other products and, you know, you can kind of make it work that way. Uh, and of course, a huge problem with that is that when you quote unquote, uh, vote for your dollars, you know, I have an article in Jackman where I talk about this, uh, you're not voting, you know, like if you want to think, okay, so it's a referendum about how you feel about that company's policies in whatever respect, uh, it's not just a referendum on that, right? Like you're trying to decide between two brands of breakfast cereal. Uh, sure. Maybe some of it is about how you feel about the company. Maybe, right. If you're a slightly strange person, uh, but mostly it's a referendum on, um, you know, which one tastes better, which one your kids like more, whether you're willing to yeah. like yeah. them be mad at you for, you know, for picking the one they like less. And most likely when you're making this decision, you're incredibly stressed out anyway. You've got like 30, you know, like 10 seconds, you know, to stand there in the aisle picking this, you know, cause you're like shopping on your way home whatever. Uh, and so it's the idea that it's that most people are going to prioritize those ideological things there, I think is unrealistic that, uh, that the context of politics of electoral action of union organizing, these are contexts that reward actually prioritizing ideological agendas, whereas the like context of market decisions very much does not reward, uh, you know, those, um, those priorities. Uh, and I think that's even more so if you're talking about things that are going to have a massive impact on your life for the next few years. If, on the other hand, uh, the the motive is not ideological, if the motive is just uh, trying to get a better life for yourself personally, uh, then, look, most people in that position, uh, if that's their motive, why would they try to, uh, to you know, why we, and they were engaged in those crazy sacrifices in a long shot effort to achieve that, that goal, since most businesses fail in the first five years anyway. Um, why would they start a co-op? And so they'd have to like share the, you know, the fruits of that success with others. Why not just shoot for becoming a regular business owner? Yeah. And then you can always be putting off those ideological concerns and be like, you know what, we're going to do things more ethically once we make enough money to do that. You know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. like a normal person starting starting a business. Like, I don't think most people have the resources to be ideological like that. No, exactly. And, and again, if the motive isn't ideological, if the motive is personal, is just trying to build a better life for yourself, then you wouldn't, you know, then you wouldn't try to do that by uh, starting a co-op. So sure, you'd have a better life than you would as a worker in a regular business. Uh, you'd do that by trying to become a, uh, a regular business owner with employees. Yeah. Clearly that way you'd have a much better life, you know, than, than you have right now. Why not shoot for the moon if you're just acting out of self-interest in a system where both possibilities are on the table? So again, I, I just, I, I think that this is one of those things. It, it sounds like a reasonable argument. 
you know, maybe if you're only halfway paying attention or you're only thinking about certain things like, okay, sure, lots of people do sacrifice to build businesses, uh, but it makes less sense the more you think about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to switch gears because I know uh, Abdul and Micah are, uh, are ready to come on. Uh, you want to uh, you want to play the uh, first clip before we bring them on? Yeah. That is the key point, right, is that most people don't think about choices, whether or not they get to pick between X health insurance plan or Y health insurance plan with a certain level of premium or a certain level of deductible. These are words that nobody really understands because they don't make much sense anyway. And they think about choice as what doctor can I see? What services can I get? When and where can I get those things? And unfortunately for too many Americans, either their choice is restricted because they don't have health insurance at all, or because the health insurance corporation whom they rely on for health insurance tells them what doctor they can see, what services they can get and when they can do it. And so we've, like you said, really flipped this on its head. The other conversation that tends to, to come up all the time, Micah, is the conversation about cost. And again, I feel like that's a misnomer, right? Because the question is always cost for whom. Um, but we really wanted to connect that to the, the cost question that real people face uh, every single day. Can you talk about how um, the way that we, we took this on in the book is shaped by and informed by your experience with your patients every day? Yeah. So the way we put it in the book is that we ask, what does Medicare for all do to the kitchen table budget? Not just to the government budget, mm. because that's what. All right. So um, let's uh, let's bring on uh, Micah Johnson and Abdul Al-Sayed, the, uh, the authors of this book, Medicare for All, A uh, Citizen's Guide. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Really excited so, for the conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, this is a this is a really good uh, this is a really good book. Uh, it's it's really uh, it's a really valuable book. It's 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 really accessible, but you know, rigorous and uh, in in sort of going through all of these policy details. Uh, so uh, so, Micah, do you want to do you want to kind of start us off uh, where you left off in uh, in that clip, talking about the. Uh, you know, the kitchen table budget and why that's the sort of budget that's more relevant to this conversation. Absolutely. And that's what patients are facing every day. You know, I come at this conversation as a doctor thinking about how my patients are impacted by the costs in the system. And the fact is, we just put such a huge burden on working class and middle class people, you know, tens, almost 10 million Americans are driven into poverty by medical costs every year. Hundreds of thousands of bankruptcies are caused by medical costs. So that's the kind of budget that I think we need to be thinking about when we're talking about healthcare costs. Because the, the critical thing is that, yes, on a national level, Medicare for all would cost similar or less than the current system, but it would make an even bigger impact for, for low-income and middle-income folks because the current system is financed so regressively with you know $20,000 insurance premiums, whether you're a millionaire or whether you're a nurse. And through with Medicare for All, by financing it progressively, the impact that you would have on people's monthly budgets when they sit down and try to figure out how much money they have left over for everything else would be enormous. Yeah, so I mean, thinking back to uh, to like the Democratic primaries uh, last uh, last year, the uh, the argument that you you constantly heard uh, from uh, from critics of uh, of Medicare for all uh, was this thing about um, you know the costs and you know how you're going to pay for it. 
Uh, and of course, you know, I mean, the the uninteresting answer to how you're going to pay for it is, you know, with with taxes, with progressive taxation, right? You know, but uh, but you know, do you like I like I I really want to spend a minute like on why that would be so much better for most people. Let me let me jump in here. Um, yeah. you know, the, the, the crazy thing is that we don't we don't know how we're going to pay for it now, right? Ten percent of people in our country do not have health insurance because the system is so damn expensive. And so it's crazy to me that we're not asking how do we pay for the status quo. It's like we got ourselves in this terrible financial bind. There's an obvious approach to fixing it, and we're too busy, right, asking why that's going to be better when it's clearly and obviously better and we're struggling with what we have right now. So we spend 18% of every dollar spent on our economy in healthcare, right? That for mediocre health outcomes, life expectancy that is six years shorter than Japan, where they're the longest lived country in the world, 55th when it comes to infant mortality, and 10% of our population doesn't have health insurance as it stands. And so this system right now is the unaffordable one. Right, Medicare for all is the affordable one. It would cost us less because of the elimination of the absurd overheads in our healthcare system. It would establish a government monopsony that would bring prices under control, and it would include every single person in the country. And so the real question is, how can we continue to afford this system where costs are too high and spiraling out of control, and why are we not leaping uh, to, to, to uh, establish an approach um, that would be far cheaper and more effective and far more equitable. Yeah, so I, I want to pick up on uh, on like two or three threads of uh, of what you just said. Uh, so uh, the the first one uh, was about um, you know, so like you said, it's uh, it's you know how we're going to pay for what we have now, and and that can be true in a couple senses, right? You know, one and probably the one that's most important, and I, I think this relates to Micah's point is uh, is how are people who currently don't have insurance uh going to uh, pay for you know for, for what we have now because uh clearly they uh they can't or uh or at least a a great many of them can't uh i think something like uh 45 percent of people who uh who don't have um you know who are uninsured right now you know say that that's because of the cost uh but then uh but then the other the other half of that is about the the costs uh, itself, you know, like the the costs for uh, for for anybody. Uh, so as far as the first half, uh, people, if we're paying for it by progressive taxation, obviously, you know, not only you know it's, it, that's fairer and that allows people, you know, who uh, to uh, to you know to have it even if they couldn't buy it as a uh, as a commodity, but also, uh, you know, you, there's the there's the issue of controlling costs, which you know which you talk about in the book, and you say you know because. This is something that I think is a sort of pseudo-sophisticated objection. You hear a lot to uh, to Medicare for all, and people say, "Oh, uh, there are all kinds of reasons why healthcare is so expensive in America, and you know, Medicare for all isn't going to just magically fix that if it's still fee for service." Uh, but something you guys talk about in the book is that under Medicare for all, the government has a lot more tools to control those costs. It's exactly right. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about why healthcare costs are so much higher. And when we have the wrong diagnosis, we, we pick the wrong treatment. So it, it just turns out that healthcare costs, they're not higher because Americans are using more healthcare, right? We're actually going to the doctor less than in other countries. We're going to the hospital less than in other countries. Our costs are higher because every time we do get care, 
the prices are so much higher. And that seems like a very simple thing to say, our costs are higher because the prices are higher, but it's actually profound because it puts out of bounds so many explanations, the sort of pseudoscientific explanations for why costs are higher. Because so many explanations lead to the conclusion that, oh, therefore we're getting more healthcare. Like for instance, mm -hmm. if you blame fee for service, really what you're saying is that we're giving people too many services. Right. And, you know, we, we can have debates around the edges for that. And there's, you know, there's a, a very good debate to be had around that, but it just comes down to the prices. And it's no mystery why, for instance, Medicare today gets prices that are a 30 to percent discount on private insurance. It's negotiating power. Having a big federal program and set the prices, you simply bring the cost down. Yeah. Uh, so... And, and, I, and I like your point about, you know, the uh, the fee-for-service argument because, uh, you know, this is something like, I mean, this is like the premise of the, the Cadillac tax from uh, from the ACA that uh, that the, the problem is, you know, that like, uh, you know, people are just going to, you know, people love going to the hospital so much, you know, they're, they're going to do it all the time, uh, you know, unless we financially uh, disincentivize them from uh, from doing it. Uh, which, which doesn't, you know, doesn't actually, uh, doesn't actually seem to be, uh, you know, like that doesn't seem to be the problem. Like that's that, you know, like you said, around the edges. Okay. Right. You know, but for the most part, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be the problem. Certainly that doesn't seem to be most people's problem. That, that That's right. I mean, we're the, the hard part is that I think the sometimes healthcare experts are conditioned to be so myopic about what's possible because they ignore what they think is politically infeasible. And so long as they can ignore what they continue to think is politically infeasible, they will continue to focus on myopic solutions that beat around the bush rather than take on the big issue. And the other part of that is that there is a feedback loop that happens when experts don't talk about the obvious set of solutions, they don't look like solutions. And so part of what we want to do with this book was break that down a little bit, right? We want to kind of take a big gong to the question and say, hey, there's an obvious set of solutions that actually addresses the central core rot in the middle of our healthcare system. And the fact that we've been ignoring that for these uh, technocratic fixes as if they're going to actually solve the fundamental problem where we have a major non-essential industry profiteering at the core of our healthcare system to the exclusion of the poorest people in the country, right? The idea that these technocratic fixes are going to take out that moral problem is itself absurd. And we have to address that. And look, I think it's really important for us to be thinking about whether or not you know, fee-for-service is the best model, et cetera, but within the bounds of a system that actually works rather than assuming that our myopic answers to myopic problems are the grand answer, which they're absolutely not. Yeah, and, and I like your moral clarity about that. You know that the uh, about the the sort of central obvious problem with the uh, the the obscenity of treating something that's that's a important human need. Uh, that you know that that's that people uh, like have to uh, to have you know that that you that you will uh, in many circumstances you know you you will literally die if you assume something you know as private commodity. Uh, but also, I have to say, like one thing that I do like about the book uh, is that uh, is that it does get into the weeds with what's wrong uh, with a lot of those technocratic fixes, uh, which which I think is is probably you know one of the things about it that's most valuable for people certainly in the audience for this show who, you know, overwhelmingly 
already have this sort of moral case that, you know, yes, of course we should have Medicare for all, uh, you know, but, but might not know how to counter some of these things or sort of explain what's wrong, you know, with, uh, with, with some of these ideas uh, that are, that are brought up by people who say, oh, you don't need Medicare for all. We can just, you know, we can just build on the ACA. We can just do some, you know, wonky fix to, uh, you know, to, to, to bring down costs and that'll be fine. And I, and I think it's, it's a really good resource for explaining why uh, that, you know, why none of that would, would address all of the problems, you know, that are caused by the existence of this like parasitic in you know, a middleman, you know, industry. Uh, but I, but I do want to start with the thing that I think cuts closest to the, like that core moral argument, uh, which is uh, the stuff that you talk about at the very beginning of the book about why, like, uh, even in purely economic terms, you know, even if you think, okay, there are like some things that markets are, you know, are, are an efficient way of, of distributing, you know, that we can have, uh, that it's, it's good, you know, that like, it makes sense that like, whatever, I don't know, toothpaste, you know, is a, uh, is a market, you know, like a market good is, is something that, you know, that it's, uh, that the the best way to get people what they want from brands of toothpaste, you know, is to uh, is to go to the you know go to the grocery store and make consumer choices. Uh, but at the beginning of the book, you guys break down like a bunch of like really straightforward disanalogies, like ways that health you know health insurance and healthcare are just not like toothpaste or other market goods. Yeah, and it's kind of stepping back. It's to me almost more remarkable that so many of us have been trained to think of healthcare like a market good because it's such of jamming a square peg into a round hole that when you think about it, it's it's kind of crazy that that we thought this could work like any commodity in the first place. And one of the stories we tell is of a young woman, Lisa Cardillo, who has chest pain, ends up having a heart attack in her mid thirties. And if you think about just every step of the way about one, what kind of care does she need? Well, th that's part of why you go to the doctor. You don't know what kind of care that you need. And then where should you get care? Well, you have to get care quickly and there's only so many places around. And then you get into the hospital and then you don't know how much stuff costs because no one tells you how much it costs. And then the insurance company is paying most of it anywhere on the back end. It's not you. So there are so many obvious ways where this breaks down. And then there's also really good research on it. If Even if you take kind of the crystallized case where we cite a study where the closest thing to a commodity in healthcare would be something like MRI of your leg, like an elective MRI of your leg. The quality doesn't change very much. It's relatively abundant. It just turns out that when you do give people that price information and kind of ask them to be consumers, of lower limb MRIs, and you give them some skin in the game with the deductible to make them pay for it, people just aren't shopping around for healthcare in the same way that they are for other services. In, in the study, the average patient would drive by six lower priced MRIs before they got to the one that they actually, uh, that they actually got. And that's in sort of the idealized case of something that might be treated like a, like a market commodity. And then what I see a lot of on the health policy expert side is people think that, okay, if you can just change one part of it, like there's some excitement now around price transparency. So instead of the patient that we tell the story, Lisa, of you know getting it, a heart pump while she's in cardiogenic shock in the ICU, if you say, well, we're going to tell her what the price is beforehand, you know, it, 
it just turns out that I, I think that's misguided. There are so many failures um, that by trying to, to nibble around the edges, you're not going to make healthcare into toothpaste. You just can't do it. Yeah, like so. So, and and even in the even in those examples, like those are like when you're you're thinking about whether like individual procedures, you know, could could be treated like toothpaste, and you know have uh, the you know that that like just market forces could you know could act the way that they're supposed to you know when it comes to something like toothpaste uh you know there are there are all these you know there are all these disanalogies uh you know that you don't show up to the the hospital the way that you show up to the grocery store knowing what you want to get you know you you're you're being told uh what you want to get you know if uh you know it's like the old thing about the uh, you know the the uh the commercials that end with, you know, ask your doctor such and such is right for you. It's like, wait a second. Am I asking my, am I telling my doctor what to prescribe for me? That seems weird, right? Like, you know, like that, that seems, you know, it's, it's is he a doctor or a drug dealer? Right. You know, like, like I, I you know, I, I'm not requesting what I want him to give to me. Right. I'm, I'm, t- I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, he or she or they will, will tell me, you know, uh, you know, what I, what I actually need. Uh, and, you know, it's often happening in emergency decision, you know, decisions where it's very hard to, you know, uh, you're not going to window shop, you know, hospitals, you know, when you, when you need, uh, when you need something to happen in the next, you know, hour, you know, to save your life. But even when, uh, and, and maybe even especially in a different way with, with health insurance, it's very weird to, uh, to think of it as something that could work as, uh, as a market good, uh, because, you know, which is, which is the premise of like, uh, you know, ACA marketplaces that, you know, that we're going to window shop for health insurance. Uh, but certainly, and, you know, like, I think the overwhelming majority of normal people uh, are not going to, um, like, when they're, lo- when they're reading descriptions on a website of, uh, of health insurance uh, plans, the differences between them are, are just going to be completely baffling to them, or it's certainly that's, all, that's always been my experience. Ben, let me, let me say a couple of things about that, right? The first is that you know, my wife and I are both doctors and, um, you know, I'd say I understand health insurance pretty well. And, you know, the last time we had to choose between plans, like we full on thought about pulling out an actuarial table to figure out what the probability was as a 36 and a 34 year old that we were going to have a really catastrophic health issue and or she was going to get pregnant, which would have been uh, our biggest cost. Um, and and so, you know, in order for for the the, the median person who likely doesn't have the same kind of training or expertise in healthcare to try and differentiate between these various plans that involve different levels of government bureaucracy and different uh, juxtapositions of different costs that you may or may not have to pay at some point in time is kind of absurd. I don't think that's the, the choice that most people want. Most people want the choice in doctor. And the number one gatekeeper of your choice in doctor is the health insurance industry. The second point is this, Ben, look, if I were to, to come to you and say, hey, Ben Burgess, uh, I've got five MRIs for 500 bucks. They're non-transferable. Would you like to buy them? You probably say no, because you don't need MRI, right? right? But here's the thing. Let's say you went out, decided to play soccer or basketball with some friends. You, you twisted your knee and felt the pop. And I came back to you. I said, ah, oh, Ben Burgess, you didn't buy those MRIs. I'm selling you one for $5,000. Would you like it? If you had the money, you probably say yes. Why? Because an MRI is critical for you to figure out what's wrong with your knee and getting to back to health. The point here is that we don't actually want health care. It's not a consumer good. It's not something anybody just wants. Health care is a means to getting back to what we actually want, which is health after we lose it. And you realize two things here. Number one, 
healthcare is inelastic in the moment of need. And so it creates these really serious problems of power uh, around when and how you charge people for healthcare um, if you're trying to make money off of it. The second is that it creates a major disincentive to preventing you from getting sick in the first place, which is of course what everybody wants because you only make money in the system after people get sick. And so it's critical for folks to understand that and to appreciate that healthcare is not a consumer good. It should not be treated as one. And we have a moral responsibility to answer the public good of healthcare uh, for people if and when they need it. The last point I'll make is this, right? Your body, my body, Micah's body, uh, Natalie's body, who you come on, uh, is coming on after, all of our bodies are worth the same, right? We, we believe that in our society. We believe that uh, it should be a good, that everybody's body uh, should be treated the same way if it gets sick, right? I mean, uh, the the adverse of this, it'd be, it'd be a crazy system if we had a legal code that punished people differently for murder, depending upon the, uh, the, the net worth of those individuals, right? And, and what we're getting at here is that there's something inviolable uh, that is existentially important about a body to a human being. But in our healthcare system, we treat your body differently, right? We literally reimburse for the same care differently, depending upon how much money you have. That's a crazy thing. And yeah, um, it doesn't meet our moral yeah. criterion. Yeah. I mean, like they, I mean, like I, I really like the murder uh, analogy uh, that, you know, I mean, you imagine uh, reporting, uh, you know, filing out a filing a police report uh, for, uh, you know, for, for a serious crime and having it be officially above board uh, that it would, uh, that, that what, like what sort of investigation you got, you know, how seriously it was treated depended on whether you had the bronze police plan, the, uh, the platinum one, the gold one, you know, like, like that, that, that would be just morally offensive on the face of it, you know, but that's literally how the existing health insurance system works. That's exactly right. And, um, and, you know, it is, it, it is that level of, of moral failure that's baked into our system that we also conveniently ignore, right? And, um, and it's frustrating because, because people deserve better. And it's been this way for too long in this country and people are suffering on the back end of it. Yeah, and, and I and I want to get uh, in just a few minutes, a little bit more into uh, in, into like the the politics of this, and into why you know we, we don't have it, why this is such a you know like w like hard fight, and what that fight looks like coming up ahead. Uh, but first, I, I did want to get into uh, a couple of the you know sort of proposed you know technocratic fixes that you know people put out there as alternatives to Medicare for all, and what you guys say in your book uh, about. Uh, about why, uh, you know, why they don't make sense or why they at least uh, don't actually, they act, aren't actually alternative paths to the same goal, you know, because that's what people will say. Look, I want, I want the same thing that you guys want. I want, you know, universal care or whatever. Uh, you know, we're just arguing about what the, the best way is to, uh, to get there. Uh, but actually a lot of these things just don't uh, achieve, like straightforwardly don't and couldn't achieve uh, a lot of the same goods that uh, that Medicare for all would. Uh, so, uh, so one of the uh, one of the technocratic fixes that you guys talk about in the book uh, is the idea that um, that we should that like what we should really focus on are these kind of um, fixes that would uh, that would bring down costs while keeping it, uh, you know, while maintaining the existence of the private health insurance industry, you know, while, while, you know, keeping this as a market, you know, market commodity. Uh, so for example, uh, some, um, you know, policy experts will say, oh, we can do things like, um, 
you know, we can give, uh, you know, we can give insurance companies tools to bargain down the price from hospitals, uh, like, like making it, you know, making it easier to exclude, you know, more expensive uh, hospital, you know, hospitals that hard charge higher prices uh, from insurance networks, or we can make it harder to consolidate hospitals, uh, you know, and, uh, and so hospital systems, which, you know, if they're consolidated, that makes it easier to jack up the price. And, and I thought that was one of the most interesting things in the book where you're, you're talking about the reasons why uh, none of this would actually achieve the same goods as Medicare for all. And in fact, uh, these, these things would make some aspects of the current system even worse, or some of them would. So here's how I, uh, I think about that suite of proposals. I think almost everyone in healthcare agrees that current healthcare markets are broken. And I think there is some debate about whether, whether they could be fixed. And I think there are, are a number of proposals in the category that say, yes, our current healthcare markets don't work, but if we did X, they would work better. And you know, some of them, in my view, would have some small positive benefit. Like for instance, the fact that we've allowed our hospital systems to essentially become local monopolies and oligopolies all over the country, where folks just have, in most cases, one or two big hospital systems that buy up all the other hospitals into these giant networks and then jack up prices. So yes, it would probably bring down prices, who knows? But by some some number of percentage points, um, by doing better antitrust against hospitals, and I think there are good political reasons to do that. You know, because concentrated economic power means concentrated political power, right. and, I, and, I, and I think that's a problem too. But when when you really just step back and you think about the the size of our problems, the fact that thirty million people are uninsured, the fact that we have an entirely regressive payment system where the poorest Americans are paying a third of their income for healthcare, you can't just shave one part of healthcare costs by a couple percent and, and think you're moving forward. And then the, the point that you're getting at is that there are also ways why making healthcare work more like a market could be bad for patients, like making it easier to exclude hospitals, exclude doctors, exclude drugs from insurance plans. That would make things, you know, in theory, more market-like negotiations because then the insurance company is it's easier for them to say no to the drug company or say no to the hospital. The problem is then you just make plans skimpier and skimpier and skimpier for patients. So I think what this tells me is that we're either making things a little bit better in terms of cost or making things noticeably worse for patients. And I think it would be a, uh, a mistake to kind of hang our hats on this as, as the way to go for health reform. Yeah, and, and one specific point that you uh, that you made about you know the way that it makes it skimpier for patients uh, was that one of the things that's been suggested to uh, to like technocratically you know like fiddle with the system to make it more market like and bring down costs is making it easier to uh, exclude things from uh, from networks. Uh, but the the second I, I I got to that, oh my god, that's that's awful, right? You know, because uh, one of the like if you're a person who has insurance, right? You know, you're you're not among millions, you know, who who are uninsured, uh, and you have insurance that you can afford to use, uh, you know, which which doesn't go without saying, uh, and uh, you know, you you don't, you know, you're not being you know bankrupted by it, etc. Like one of the worst things 
about you know having uh, you know private, usually employer-based, you know health insurance, uh, is that you you have to constantly worry about what's in network uh, and uh, and and what's not. You know, so you have uh, you know with so. For example, you know, if if you're in a, you know, like if you're uh, far from home and you have an emergency medical need, you know, then then there's there's a there's there's a worry. Oh, uh oh, is the hospital where I go to going to be you know going to be a network? Uh, and, you know, am I going to get a big bill? And uh, and even just in in the sort of most mundane kind of healthcare needs, like if you just have long term prescriptions. That you know you have to go see a doctor you know once every few months purely just to to get the prescription refilled. That's it. You know it's 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 routine. You know it shouldn't be you know it shouldn't be dramatic. One of the worst things about this system is that every time you change jobs, every time your employer decides to change your uh, your insurance, uh, then you have to find a new person to who can prescribe this thing for you. Uh, who uh, who is in network? You have to uh, you have to do a little research to find out who that person is. You have to wait for that initial appointment. Uh, you have to, you know, wait, 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 you know, while you're counting out the pills uh, and having it be even more limited. What's what, what's, what's in network, uh, I, you know, is the kind of thing that I, I understand how somebody could get there if all they're thinking about is, okay, what are possible ways to tinker with the system that would have the effect of bringing down costs if this is basically, we basically still have a market system. But if you're thinking about the actual experience of, of patients, I mean, that's, that's kind of horrifying. That's right. This, Go ahead, Michael. I say it goes back to the clip you played at the top of the show about choice. And you think about it, who, who has more choice? Who is more free in their healthcare choices? Is it someone in the employer-based insurance market or is it someone on Medicare? where if you believe the political discourse, the person on the private insurance market has all the choice in the world. They can choose Aetna, they can choose Blue Cross, they can choose United, all these beautiful choices. But th the whole premise of the private insurance market, one of the things that makes it a market is that each of these insurance companies decides what's in and what's out, which hospitals are in, which hospitals are out. That's how they negotiate. So any person, on, on those private insurance plans has their choices restricted in, in very real ways. Whereas on Medicare, they, you know, Medicare Advantage and sort of privatized Medicare aside, someone on Medicare, you might say, oh, well, they don't have any choice in their health insurance. But what they do have is a, a plan where all doctors and hospitals are in network. And I think in a very straightforward way, people on Medicare have far more healthcare choices and have more freedom in their healthcare. And I think that's one of the ways in, in which our um, political conversation gets things backwards. And I think it's no, it's no um, coincidence why that's the case, where it's the insurance companies uh, want you to believe that you have less choice on Medicare, even as they're the ones who are restricting the choice of healthcare that patients can actually get. Yeah, Abdul, you yeah, no, I was just going to, I was going to add, you know, the hard part about most bureaucracies is that they're designed by bureaucrats and bureaucrats usually make things easier for them and not necessarily easier for users. And so, you know, we've got this broken system and bureaucrats inside of it are like, oh, here are some, here are some things that we could do to theoretically uh, fix the following set of problems, but they miss the entire user experience of, uh, of the, uh, of the system. And in doing that, right, you end up forgetting the most important part, which is 
the user at the center. And so healthcare has become more and more complex, harder and harder to use, uh, and more and more of a challenge uh, for people who are already being chewed up and spit out by the system. Uh, I also think we, Ben, you just came back right in time, man. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so sorry, I, uh, I, I don't want to make you repeat yourself too much, but you, uh, you said um, uh, bureaucrats generally design things to make it easier for them. Yeah, they, they design it around themselves and their own experience of the system rather than around uh, the people who use it every day. And um, the, the, the problem is, is that a lot of times when you decide that you are going to ignore the moral rot at the center of the system, you end up designing more and more fixes that make the thing more and more complex and harder and harder to use uh, for the end user. Yeah, right. Uh, which, because that's, uh, yeah, like you, it's, it's almost like the, uh, you know, was it the old lady who sold, swallowed the fly, right? You know, you have, okay, you know, you have a fundamentally, uh, you know, fundamentally like broken, uh, and, uh, and system, uh, that, uh, that, that just isn't going to get what most human beings want out of it. Uh, and you, you introduce a complexity to, you know, to solve one problem and you end up with, you know, because you've, you've, maintained that rod at the core of the system, you know, that complexity that you've introduced to solve one problem is, is going to, uh, is going to lead to, uh, to others, uh, others elsewhere that unfortunately uh, makes a lot of sense. And then you um, swallow a horse and die. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I think the, the point that I've, I've heard both of you make a couple times here about, about choice is really important and worth circling and underlining. Uh, and this, this is another one of those things that uh, that I think is might sound like it makes sense if you squint a little bit, but you know, but makes much less sense if you if you start to think about it more and relate it to any ordinary human experience, because you know there are lots of people who like their doctors uh, and and would be you know sad if they never saw their doctor again. Uh, I've I've never met anybody who who cared passionately and deeply or had an emotional attachment, you know, to whether they had Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield. That's right. All right. <laughs> um, so I, I want to uh, I want to bring uh, Forrest back on. There are uh, there are a couple of clips that uh, that we wanted to uh, want to get you uh, you guys' reaction uh, reaction to sort of you know thinking through some of like the standard arguments that you know that people make against Medicare for all. Yeah. Well, I was going to start with the pandemic one, but maybe since you guys are talking about choice, we should start with um, the debate. Uh, it's like just a supercut of, of different times of the debates that candidates used um, choice as a <laughs> as a way to discredit. Yeah, let's 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 start there, then go to the pandemic. All right. The thing that Bernie's plan does is that you either have to have uh, his plan or no plan. Period. Nothing. You cannot choose. A lot of these people have gone out and they've negotiated with their employers a significant health care plan that they've given up salaries for. They've given up part of their, their, their income for and they like it. They should be entitled to choose to keep it if they wish. If they don't wish to keep it, they can buy into the public option that I propose. And it's affordable and it can happen immediately. The attitude that we know better than ordinary people what's in their interest. I know more than you. Let me tell you what to do. I'm with, and it wasn't she's elitist. The attitude is elitist, that people can't make up their own minds. You like your health insurance, but you shouldn't like your health insurance. You should have to give that up. 
I'm going to demand you not have that. We're going to give you something better. I like, I'm, I know what I want. What about choice? Well, under their plan, you will be forced to give up your private health insurance, whether you want it or not. On my plan, we trust you to make the choice that's best for your family. And that's why their plan is called Medicare for All, and my plan is Medicare for All Who Want It. Our plan says that if you're uninsured, we enroll you in Medicare. If you're insufficiently insured, you can't afford your premiums, we enroll you in Medicare. But if you're a member of a union that negotiated for a health care plan that you like because it works for your you time is up. and your family, you're able to keep it. We preserve choice by making sure that everybody your has time is up. Well, I've been on the Medicare for All bill since 2007, but like anything, I think we need to take steps in direction. I personally don't believe we need to take people off of their private health insurance. If they enjoy it, we need to make sure there are protections there for them around pre-existing conditions and all of that. I can't speak for them, but what I do know is that there are millions of Americans who don't want to give up their private health insurance. Someone on my team has a father who's retired from GM 30 years, and he said that he doesn't want anybody touching his health insurance. He said that he gave up so many things in terms of salary and negotiations so that he could have his health, his private health insurance for the remainder of his life. And I think that speaks to the sentiment of so many people. So one thing very important, we have 180 million people out there that have great private health care, far more than we're talking about with Obamacare. Joe Biden is going to terminate all of those policies. These are people that love their health care, people that have been successful, middle income people, been successful. They have 180 million plans, 180 million people, families. Under what he wants to do, which will basically be socialized medicine, he won't even have a choice. So, uh, thoughts about that uh, that that montage of, uh, of of arguments? You know, in the end, people don't really want a choice of a plan; they want a choice of a doctor. And um, and Medicare for all more than lets you keep your doctor. In fact, it lets you expand which doctor you want to see, because all the doctors would take Medicare, and so. Uh, I think we're confusing what choice means in this situation, uh, and we're allowing the health insurance talking points to dictate our public policy rather than allowing uh, reason and allowing what's actually right for, for folks uh, and the fact that we could uh, include every single American uh, under the umbrella of healthcare if we were to engage in Medicare for all. Um, so I just think that uh, that unfortunately, uh, it's sad to see, but you know, when an industry spends billions of dollars disinforming the American public, um, oftentimes they can uh, they can sway the talking point to politicians too. Yeah, uh, and uh, and this this part of that that also came up a few times uh, where there was this sort of weird attempt uh, by different politicians in those clips uh, to say that because workers have often fought through the unions, you know, for uh, health insurance plans. Uh, and they've given up other things for that. Therefore, it's like somehow anti-labor uh, to uh, to want everybody to have uh, to have health insurance that's not tied to their employer. Yeah, well, there's there's the one that's especially bad, which is um, Atlanta's mayor acting as Biden's surrogate, saying you know uh, like an older member of her staff or someone has a father that doesn't want anyone to touch his health insurance, which would make sense if if you're putting it in in the framing of like. Oh, you're gonna lose your health insurance. You know what I mean? Like, of course, that instability 
scares people if that's the the talking point that you're leading with is like you know you know you're, you're not going to know what happens you have health insurance now and you're going to lose it but like that's obviously ridiculous framing yeah we've all got this kind of pavlovian reaction to hearing that phrase lose health insurance you know, because because what we associate with that with is like not being able to go to the doctor or having huge bills. Uh, but obviously, what that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about losing your health insurance. We're talking about having, um, you know, about having uh, public uh, public health insurance. Uh, and and that that actually, so I would be really interested in you guys' take on that that argument that because people have had to fight for. Uh, insurance plans, uh, you know, uh, and and given things up in negotiations uh, for insurance. That therefore uh, having uh, better insurance, you know, is like some sort of insult to that fight, or is is somehow taking something away from them. I think there's actually an interesting philosophical assumption that's in there, which is this idea of, in virtue of what do we deserve healthcare? And I think one of the ideas that's put in there is that you have to have had sacrificed something. You had to give something up to get healthcare. Um, and I think we see that on the other side too, with the debate about Medicaid work requirements, which is that in order to deserve healthcare, you have to, you know, document all of this, all of this things that you're trying to do. And I think that's, you know, in some of the clips that we've seen are kind of playing into that. What did you give up to get this healthcare? And I think part of what makes the Medicare for all conversation exciting and also difficult is it asks us to rethink that. It is, it is not because of something you did that you deserve or don't deserve healthcare. You deserve healthcare because you're a human being. We're trying to make healthcare a human right. And I think because of the way that we've been talking about healthcare for the last 40 years, it's a big shift, but I do think it is a, a, um, a shift that people are ready for. I think lots of people, when they really step back and think about it, really do believe that healthcare is a human right. And, you know, we see that in, in the polling bears, bears out that impression. Um, but I do think that it's, it requires a pretty fundamental change in the way that we talk about healthcare. Yeah. I mean, so, so there, there are two things there. One is, okay, who should have healthcare? You know, what if anything should you have to do to like earn that? Uh, and and yes, I, 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 there's like a really compelling, you know, just straightforward moral case for saying that you know you should just you know being a person, you know, should be enough, you know, to uh, to get healthcare. Uh, you know, be like, I mean, if if somebody, you know, if if you if you walk by somebody and they're drowning in a pool, you know, what what should uh, what like you know what should they have to do to deserve you waiting in to you know to pull them out? Presumably nothing, right? You know, just just be a person. Uh, but then the other half of it is even from the labor vantage point. Uh, I mean, as somebody who, in a very small way, has been uh, in this in this circumstance, you know, when when I was a um, uh, adjunct instructor at, at, at Rutgers. I was on the board of our union local and, and we didn't have health insurance and we we're trying to get it, you know, um, like when I hear that, Oh, uh, people have had to fight for this. They they've had to, and they've had to give up other things, you know, wages and other things in exchange for it. Uh, I would think that the obvious response would be, okay, great. So if that's off the table now, uh, because uh, because we're going to have Medicare for all, then now you can go back and fight for those other things that you had to give up before. That's exactly right. Right? Is that is that uh, we we assume right that that on net 
if someone were to lose their employer-sponsored health insurance, then they'd be losing a benefit that their employer would be giving them. The crazy thing, though, is that employers would rather be giving you cash money, and that's the trade-off. And um, one of the most stark examples of this, I was talking to a small business owner uh, who employs people in both Canada and the United States, and he was having a conversation with uh, the folks in the United States, and he was telling them, look, I wish I could be paying you this money in cash, but instead I have to give it to some large health insurance corporation so that you have health care. For my Canadian employees, I just pay a small tax and then pay them cash in the difference. And they're getting a far better deal out of it. And so we forget the fact that those dollars aren't just yes or no dollars. They're dollars that are spent in healthcare or in something else. And that bargaining, that hard work that uh, that unions do for their members. That would be hard work that would be delivering some other benefit that they could uh, leverage to, to invest in, 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 in their kids uh, in their families. And, um, and that's the trade-off. So, you know, it is a misnomer to frame the issue that way. And it's done on purpose to make you think you're losing something uh, rather than, uh, than in fact gaining something. And with that, a tremendous amount of freedom. Because of course, you know, if you're getting your health insurance through your job, it makes, it makes leaving that job a lot harder to do. Uh, and it forces you to think twice. How many people are left in marriages or left in jobs that are dead ends, uh, aren't investing in you know, writing that book or, or opening that business because they're stuck in that job so that they can get health insurance for themselves and their families. And we forget the kind of liberty, economic liberty that comes uh, with a system that's with you, whether you turn 26, whether you get married, you get divorced, you get a new job, you turn 65, it's always there for you. It's also like driving a really sinister wedge between universal programs and unionized workers. And I, I think that this happens all the time. Like we were just talking about the just transition, the idea that, um, you know, like when we get a Green New Deal, like workers have to be transitioned from one industry to jobs kind of in the same industry that, um, you know, that, that would be environmentally friendly jobs. And it's kind of the same thing here, you know, like driving a wedge between unionized workers and uh, the idea of universal health care. Which, 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 again, is particularly for the reason Abdul was saying is particularly weird in this case because uh, you're literally not, you know, there's, there's, there's no uh, trade-off between values here. You're literally not, you know, giving something up. It, you know, maybe used to be the case that you had to accept slightly lower wages or whatever uh, because your priority in bargaining, you know, was making sure that everybody had health care. Now you'd have the health care anyway. Uh, so you no longer have to uh, to accept those lower wages or whatever. You can go back to the bargaining table and fight for higher wages or for other kinds of benefits uh, because this other thing that you were willing to sacrifice that for, that stuff for, you have anyway. Um, and also, I think I think Abdul's point about uh, about freedom is is really important here because. Um, you know, I mean, also, if we're, if we're going to talk about the labor connection, think about the other half of it. Think about people who uh, who who are in non-unionized workplaces but might like to organize a union. You know, that's, uh, you know, legally you're not supposed to be able to fire people for that, but people are fired for that all the time. You know, there, there, there are real risks there. Uh, there are ways that you can be fired for that, you know, with and it's, it's disguised as something else. Uh, and and people are somewhat more likely to be willing to take risks and taking on their employers if they have fewer of these strings tying them to those employers. Like, oh crap! If I lose this job, I'll lose my health insurance. 
All right. Uh, so everything we've been talking about so far, uh, you know, is is a conversation that we could have equally had in uh, in 2019. Uh, but of course, uh, as you know, the fact that we're not having this conversation in a uh, you know studio somewhere, uh, you know, there's 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 a specific thing that's you know that's going on in the world that that puts all this in uh, in an even different uh, different light. So, Forrest, do you want to play the uh, the clip about uh, healthcare and the pandemic? Yeah. You have that one. President Biden, some medical experts are saying the only true way to control this virus is through a national quarantine, requiring every American other than essential personnel to stay home. Would you take that unprecedented step of a national lockdown? What I would do is what we did in our administration. I would call a meeting in the Situation Room of all the experts in America dealing with this crisis. I would sit them down and I would do exactly what we did then. What is it that we need? Listen to the experts. What do we need? And with all due respect to Medicare for all, you have a single payer system in Italy. It doesn't work there. It has nothing to do with Medicare for all. That would not solve the problem at all. We can take care of that right now by making sure that no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not. All right. Uh, so uh, so I know, um, you know, I'm not sure about Micah. I know Abdul has to uh, has to jet soon. Uh, but first, uh, I wanted to make sure uh, that, that I gave you guys a, a chance to, uh, to re, you know, to uh, to react to that clip, right? Like, is it the case that simply because of the government covering, co- you know, things that are immediately related to the coronavirus, that we are not, in fact, at a disadvantage, you know, in the pandemic because we don't have Medicare for all? I, you know, 15 million people lost their health insurance because of our employer-sponsored uh, health system. And even if they get back on, that interruption can be devastating for people. Not only that, but because everything is predicated on a profit, we watched as our doctors and nurses and, and, and hospital workers went without the basic PPE they needed because, of course, management consultants will tell you that you shouldn't stock more of those things than you absolutely need. On top of that, we watched as our hospitals were battling bankruptcy. 47 of them went into bankruptcy in the middle of a pandemic. And meanwhile, you know who's making bumper profits? the health insurance industry. Why? Because they don't have to pay for those elective procedures uh, that they had booked and they just kept that in profit and instead plowed a lot of that money back in, $151 million to be exact, into 845 lobbyists who now have have uh, have have, have uh, pushed forward a system. And look, I love a lot of things about the American Rescue Plan. The one part I don't love is the fact that instead of putting people on a public option or on Medicare, uh, who lost their private health insurance, we are plowing money back into the private insurance uh, industry through a set of COBRA subsidies that basically pays them to do the thing they could have afforded and should have done in the first place, which is keep people on their health insurance even if uh, they had lost it in the midst of a, of a global pandemic. One, one of the most intense uh, disasters that we had seen in this country, especially in the first uh, three months, right? An unprecedented moment. Instead of keeping those folks on their health insurance, they just made bumper profits and then plowed that back into lobbying. And so there are a lot of things um, that uh, we got wrong. The last one I, I want to talk about is the fact that we are in a moment where we are trying to deploy a vaccine, which is a medical marvel, which by the way, uh, the R&D was largely paid for by we, the American public and 
the pharmaceutical industry is trying to take all the credit for it. But in effect, we still can't figure out how to deploy it at scale, right? Only about 12%, 13% now uh, of Americans have gotten their full course of vaccinations because we don't have a functioning public health uh, in, uh, 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 infrastructure. And that's largely because we spend 18% on all the curative stuff. And so in our system, right, because you can't make money preventing disease, we don't do it. Uh, and we are paying the sac we're, we're, we're paying the consequence of that now. And so there are a lot of things that would have been very different under Medicare for all. We would have been able to make sure that uh, our hospitals were well supplied. They wouldn't have had to worry about uh, bankruptcy. Uh, 15 million of people wouldn't have lost their health insurance. And we would have done the work of investing in prevention in the first place. Because of course, if the government is your insurer yesterday, today, and tomorrow, their investment yesterday into your health bears out for them tomorrow. And so there's a real incentive to do that under private health insurance, there's not. And so for all of those reasons, uh, Medicare for all certainly would have pre prepped us far better uh, for this kind of crisis than what we saw uh, in over the past year plus. All right. Uh, so uh, I, I do, I'm going to uh, let you go in a second, but I, I, I did, since you, you mentioned something that I think is really important that I think a lot of people don't know, uh, which is about the R&D to, develop, to, uh, to develop the, uh, the vaccines. Uh, do you want to expand on that really quickly? $10 billion, right? Excuse me, $100 billion uh, is what, um, what was spent in Operation Warp Speed. Uh, and um, and uh, that is uh, largely what both invested in the baseline R&D uh, for, um, for these vaccines and also uh, guaranteed purchase uh, for vaccines that were, were manufactured. In fact, you know, guaranteed contracts even if uh, the research failed. And on top of that, a lot of the basic science was based on government investment. That company Moderna, right? It was a company that was seeded by uh, by by government grants um, to figure out how to create an RNA-based uh, vaccine. That is what we are, you know, thankfully uh, deploying today in the form of both the Pfizer vaccine uh, and the Moderna vaccines. And so, so much of the basic research that we are we are now watching as the pharmaceutical industry is deploying right, came out of government funds. Uh, and we have to be serious about who funds the, 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 the vast majority of the riskiest research before uh, it ultimately bears out. And, um, you know, we have this sort of system of public-private partnerships where the public puts in all the money and the, and, and the private corporations uh, get all the shine. And, you know, that's part of the problem here. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank hey, you I so much. Wanna, I just want to say that I appreciate oh. all three of you guys have uh, bookshelves with your books. Um, featured on it it makes me wish i had written a book so i could i could have well, that you got, got an amazing mountain scene over here huh? Yours yeah is far more uh uh well, I, I put my book behind the tree actually and i, <laughs> I, I it was, it's, it's a whole mountain of your books i mean we don't we <laughs> it's future books i mean yeah there we go there we go uh so um everybody uh everybody should check out uh this book uh which uh uh, unlike the, the one behind me, I didn't write. Uh, these guys did. Uh, Medicare for All, a, uh, a citizen's guide. I think even people who are, um, you know, familiar with like a lot of the, the basics of this, this, this debate, you know, uh, have, you know, can, can kind of explain why, you know, it would be, um, you know, Medicare for All would save most people money and, you know, things like this. I, I think you're going to learn things from this. Uh, I think that if you, I think that if you you run into the most sophisticated objections to Medicare for all, 
uh, you know, this, this book is really going to give you ammunition. So, um, yeah, um, you shouldn't have to buy health insurance, but, uh, but do buy this book. <laughs> thanks so All much right. for having us. All right. Thanks guys. Bye. Thank you. All right, that was uh, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed uh, and, uh, and Micah Johnson, uh, authors of Medicare for All, a, uh, a citizen's guide. In just a minute, uh, we are going uh, to, uh, to be joined uh, by, uh, by Natalie Schur uh, to, uh, to talk a little bit more about the politics and strategy, uh, those dimensions of, uh, of the fight for, uh, for Medicare for All. Um, one um, so uh, so before we do that, uh, let's uh, let's just plug a, a few things that uh, that that are coming up. Uh, so one of them I already mentioned on Wednesday, uh, Forrest and I and I think Branko Marketic are uh, going to uh, be uh, doing a stream on the uh, 18th anniversary of the beginning of uh, of the war uh, the war in Iraq uh, and. Um, and again, that's why we're not doing a Biden update right now. That essentially is going to be our Biden update. Uh, and, uh, you know, given, uh, given his, uh, his, his role and all of that. Uh, and on, uh, on Friday, got the next uh, philosophy, uh, philosophy Friday, uh, you know, stream uh, with, uh, with Jennifer Burgess. Uh, on Sunday, uh, JG Michael from the Parallax Views podcast is going to be joining me for the Sunday night uh, debate breakdown. Uh, we're going to be, uh, uh, watching uh, this, this is a real thing that really happened. Uh, Timothy Leary's 1990 debate with G. Gordon Liddy. Uh, so uh, that should uh, that's, that should that's, be- yeah, that's insane. Like <laughs> hearing yeah, that right? that's the thing that happened is like a it's like playing Mad Libs or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so um, and uh, and next Monday, uh, R.J. Esco. Uh, is going to be on to talk with me about this book, Why Not Socialism, uh, by uh, by GA Cohen, uh, and uh, Nanda Vila is going to be on, uh, which uh, which should be uh, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, also, I uh, want to just uh, just briefly uh, talk about. Um, oh, I missed in that rendition of all the things that are coming up. I missed on Thursday uh, the episode that's uh, that's going to be dropping for uh, for patrons. We'll play the preview probably a little bit later in the episode. Uh, but the uh, Thursday episode for patrons uh, is uh, Gene Bajalan and Pascal Robert joining me uh, to do a Topo reading series style uh, line by line breakdown of an article that was printed in the National Review defending uh, the British monarchy. Yeah, that episode uh, was really good. Um, you know, I'd like I, I mean, obviously people should become patrons for a lot of reasons, but you know, coming a patron this week, I think uh, hearing Pascal go against. Um, go against the monarchy is, is great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there's a, uh, there's a line. Uh, I don't remember where he says it, but there's a line from, you know, Christopher Hitchens, you know, old, good pre nine 11 hitch, obviously uh, that I've, I've always, uh, I've always liked uh, where, where he's talking about how it's such a damn shame that um, like uh, people, you know, that uh, Americans who, who are called Anglophiles, you know, always admire, you know, reactionary garbage like the monarchy and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, the, and the English equivalent, you know, for Americans, you know, they're always like really into, uh, you know, American imperialism. Uh, you know, it's, it's never that the, uh, the people who are, uh, the, um, uh, the English, you know, America files, you know, are big fans of the separation of church and state. 
and the, uh, and the, the American Anglophiles are big admirers of the National Health Service. Yeah, uh, that's good. Um, I, I don't know. It's just kind of, I mean, after watching kind of that like Jordan Peterson hierarchy thing, it kind of makes sense why American conservatives are so um, obsessed with the monarchy a lot of times because it literally is like a pointless hierarchy, like literally a pointless hierarchy that they believe in, in Britain is God-given pretty much. And that, you know what yeah, I mean? Well, like, yeah, I mean, people say, oh, they don't really govern and, you know, it's just symbolic. It's like, yeah, it is just symbolic. But what it what it symbolizes is profound inequality. Yeah. Uh, in any case, uh, we are now joined uh, to uh, continue the health discussion by Natalie Schur. Thank you so much for coming on, Natalie. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So uh, I, I wanted to uh, I want to kind of um, switch. Uh, you know, unless you have anything to say about the monarchy, I uh, want to uh, want to switch uh, switch gears uh, to. Uh, to talking, you know, a little bit more about the uh, the, the political and strategic uh, aspects of the uh, of the Medicare for All, uh, you know, fight. Since this is something that you've uh, that you've written a lot about, uh, and so uh, that's the uh, that's the article uh, that you uh, that you wrote recently uh, for uh, for the Nation, uh, you know. But also, uh, you've written a couple things for uh, for Jacobin recently about sort of what the um, you know what the road ahead for you know fighting for Medicare for all uh, you know looks like. Uh, and uh, and I want to get to uh, to the Nation piece. Uh, but but first, I, I want to talk about a little bit more of that, uh, you know, that that big picture stuff. So I think a lot of people, you know, like that moment when it seemed like Bernie Sanders might, you know, get the Democratic presidential nomination, you know, become president, you know, was the time when Medicare for all has felt the most achievable. Uh, and so, of course, now, you know, that none of that happened. Uh, it feels, you know, it, it feels much, uh, you know, much less so. Uh, but, um, you know, but w what do you think, like, like realistically, like, like just, just big, you know, thousand feet, you know, kind of view, right? Like, like, like what does the path from where we are now to actually achieving this look like? Right. So I, I think overall, the promise of the Bernie Sanders presidency, as far as I saw it, was that uh, Bernie Sanders understood power. He understood that uh, the way out of this neoliberal area, era and its very long tail is to build power from the ground up, uh, build worker power, build movement power, and that those are the things that are going to allow you to you know, challenge and change the constraints that we're working within. So, you know, what that means is, you know, having a top-down champion of movements, uh, I think probably the most pro-labor president in history, et cetera, would have gone a long way to helping those movements grow and helping build that sort of uh, confrontational grassroots energy. Uh, but, you know, just having him in office wouldn't have necessarily meant that we would have gotten Medicare for all during his uh, term either. Um, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that. I think he could have gotten us closer than anyone else would have. And it's difficult to think of someone replacing him, at least in the short or medium term. Um, so I think that, you know, it's, it's hard. It was a hard loss and we have to acknowledge that. Uh, that said, I think that moving forward, the political terrain feels better than it would have without Bernie. I think that he's 
He's changed things for the better. Um, you know, the past couple of years, more people have talked about Medicare for All and have come to support it than any time in my lifetime. And, you know, probably any time since the 70s, if not the 40s. I mean, there is a considerable amount of popular support for it. Uh, the downside, and what I think that people don't understand about the fight for Medicare for All, is that the real problem is that it's fundamentally going to upend a three and a half trillion dollar industry. Uh, it is a fight against capital. It's a massive fight against capital. Uh, and it's difficult to imagine getting Medicare for all without an attenuating leftist progressive movement uh, that brings us to a place that looks different than where we are now. So I think it's promising, uh, but daunting. And, uh, you know, you can't really sugarcoat the latter fact. Yeah, right. That's, that's, yeah, fair enough. Uh, and, and this is, and this is an important thing because, uh, cause I think like, you know, when, when you think about what, what could have happened if, uh, if Bernie, you know, had been, you know, had been elected, uh, you know, that, that would have been, you know, what you're talking about is essentially the, uh, the presidential bully pulpit being used in service mm -hmm. of, uh, of building momentum for, for Medicare for all, uh, you know, which, which would have been amazing. Uh, but, uh, but what it, what it wouldn't have meant is that he, uh, he would have like somehow, um, like magically just by virtue of, uh, of, of being president, uh, done something that, that would have led to like, you know, Medicare for all, you know, passing both, uh, both houses, you know, getting past any other last minute impediments. Like I, I, I believe that, uh, especially with the conservative Supreme court majority, but frankly, even with, you know, even with Supreme court justices who, who we wouldn't necessarily think of as conservatives, they will come up with, you know, whenever we get to that point, you know, there's an excellent chance that they'll come up with some incredibly creative reason, you know, to think that uh, that major reforms like Medicare for all, you know, would be would be unconstitutional just because you and I don't know what it is doesn't mean that they can't come up with something. Yeah. Uh, you know, like like all of those all those impediments would have would have still existed. I mean, even if it was like Bernie Sanders coming into uh, to this exact uh, situation, uh, you know, most. um you know, most members of the uh, of the House, never mind the Senate, uh, just are openly not in favor. Yeah, um, I mean, right now the Senate is still the bigger holdup than the House. Uh, Pramila Jayapal just reintroduced the Medicare for All bill in the House and has uh, slightly more than a majority of the Democratic caucus signed on. Um, so that's exciting. You know, eventually, I believe slightly over half last term did sign on, but they weren't signed on from the get go. So it does seem like, you know, a little bit of steam has been built. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Um, the Senate, if anything, I don't think that it's been reintroduced yet, but, uh, you know, Al Franken was one of the original co-sponsors. He's obviously gone. Um, so, you know, the Senate was around uh, 15, give or take a few Senate co-sponsors. Uh, so there's obviously a very long way to go there. But as I keep saying, you know, I think that in terms of organizing, writing a really great bill and, you know, one great thing about the uh, House bill especially is that it was written uh, in conjunction with many 
grassroots organizers who have been working on Medicare for all for years. They were really at the table in uh, a very robust and genuine way helping to write this bill. So I think that there's this beautiful vision advanced in the bill uh, and a lot of organizing happening uh, at the congressional level, getting people signed on. And that's all a great thing. Um, but I do think that, you know, part of what never made sense to me about some of the force the vote discussion is that uh, until we really get close, um, you just have no idea who is on the right side and who's not on the right side because capital is going to put up such an enormous, incomprehensibly large fight against this and that that's the real obstacle. So, you know, squabbling about what, what Democrats are on and what aren't, I, I think that that's you know, somewhat important in terms of engaging people and organizing, but it's it's not the real fight, uh, or it's not the biggest fight. Yeah. So, so I, I want to get back to the uh, the force the vote stuff in a minute, but I I think that um, like you know I can imagine somebody listening to this and thinking, okay, well, hell, you know, the, the first half you know got me jazzed up about how important it is that you know we get you know we get Medicare for all, and 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 now I'm hearing all about how uh, incredible you know incredibly steep the uh, the obstacles are uh which you know which, which they are uh but it's and and i i don't you know i don't see what we we benefit from you know from being you know being dishonest about that uh but i i, I think like maybe the like the way to think about this i mean obviously this is a really important thing to to fight for both you know for all the like human reasons that we've been talking about that you know it's it's so uh, you know it's 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 be so profoundly beneficial to you know to achieve this, uh, but also if you want to uh, advance a left agenda, generally you know you you want to you want to counter you know the uh, the interests of capital, uh, then it makes sense to emphasize something that is uh, that's 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 part of the left's agenda that's that's easy to understand that's that's. Um, you know, very popular, uh, you know, that, you know, which, and I know that that's sometimes exaggerated that if you, if you kind of uh, read the fine print of polling data, you know, some people are confused about the differences, you know, between, mm -hmm. uh, you know, between different, you know, health reform ideas, but, you know, broadly speaking, it is incredibly popular, yeah. like, like, you know, most, you know, which, which makes, I mean, it'd be weird if it wasn't right. Like, like if, if you, if, you know, you go to most people who aren't political obsessives and say, uh, how would you feel if uh, instead of uh, constantly worrying about losing your health insurance uh, and and surprise bills and all this stuff, you know, the uh, the government just picked up the tab for everybody's health insurance. Yeah. You, yeah. You'd be like a strange person if you're like, no, 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 no. I care. I like my Blue Cross Blue Shield. Thank you very much. You know, like I want none of this. So, so it makes sense to, uh, to emphasize it, but, uh, it's, it's not like, it's not something that could be achieved, um, that could be achieved quickly, uh, you know, under, you know, under, under present circumstances because the resistance is so incredibly steep. Like you, you already got into a little bit of this, but like, for one thing, like the health, the health care sector generally, uh, all of which is currently based around the private insurance system, is a huge chunk of the U.S. economy. 
Yeah, I think that what you're saying makes perfect sense. And overall, uh, yeah, you can squabble about the margins and some of the specifics and, you know, how public opinion changes when uh, they phrase the question in a certain way or, you know, emphasize scare, scary things like, oh, even if you lose your insurance, things like that. Um, you know, overall, we know that Medicare for all is popular and it absolutely should be. And that's not a surprising thing. Uh, and so I think for that reason, it makes sense to center it uh, in a leftist vision and a way to get people to understand what the uh, leftist agenda is, to get people to understand the difference between, you know, a Bernie Sanders style of politics and a Hillary Clinton style of politics. And, you know, as a way to explain what kind of world we're looking for um, and certainly as a thing to organize around. I, I think that the centering of Medicare for all at some point kind of confused people and got them thinking, and it is, it's a bill that exists in the House, uh, thinking that it's this bill that's, you know, on the verge of passing or that we could pass. And, you know, there are types of bills where uh, calling your congressperson, like lobbying strictly in that sense can push it over the top. And I think people don't quite understand what it is that Medicare for all would represent. Um, I mean, depending on how you frame and define it, uh, it's among the most redistributive pieces of legislation in American history. It, like I said, I mean, it fundamentally upends a three and a half trillion dollar industry. It eliminates uh, full scale, you know, the insurance industry itself, but in changing how hospitals are paid and changing how pharmaceutical co uh, companies, device companies, et cetera, are paid, it really does challenge and upend those industries. And, you know, those industries are not just owned by uh, massive, you know, CEOs and private equity firms, although they are increasingly, and that's a problem, you know, there are also tons of public pension funds uh, invested in healthcare companies and, you know, 401ks, et cetera. So, you know, the, the amount of um, capital that is invested in the status quo is considerable. And as leftists, that shouldn't, that, that shouldn't push us away. But I do think it's a way of understanding how big this demand is, and it will take basically, you know, a, a reorientation of the political landscape on a pretty significant order. And I think that that's what we need for a variety of reasons, not just for Medicare for all, but you have to see it in that context. Yeah. Like, like one, one way to think about this, like to tie back into uh, the first half of the show tonight is that all of the things that from our perspective would make it so good and desirable to have Medicare for all are all ways in which it would adversely affect the interests of people who are much more powerful than us. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the fact that it, uh, that, yeah, we, we, you know, most people, you know, would, would, uh, you know, would, would save a lot of money, et cetera, you know, because it's incredibly redistributive, you know, so, mm -hmm. uh, so, so people, uh, you know, so that, you know, would, would be, you know, like, again, that's, that's something that's obviously, uh, bad, you know, for, uh, for the interests of, you know, wealthy people, you know, who, uh, who would be paying more, uh, the fact that it would, uh, that it would give, um, that it would give people so much more, uh, more freedom, uh, in all the senses that Abdul was talking about earlier that like, oh, you know, you like, sure, you know, you'd be much less worried about pissing off your boss, 
uh, if uh, if you weren't worried that that would mean that you lose your health insurance. But for the same reason, uh, that means that your boss has a vested interest in keeping the system of uh, of private, you know, mostly employer based uh, health insurance. The uh, the fact. Uh, that uh, the ways that it would have all these cost cutting ab- advantages. Okay, if you have a single payer, you know they can dictate prices, you know, to everywhere else in the system. Obviously, is a very good and desirable thing, but that also means that everybody who is currently able to, uh, you know, to bill private insurance companies for way more than they would be able to bill, uh, you know, this Medicare for All program for, everybody who's in that position has a vested interest in uh, in stopping it. Uh, and obviously, I think all of those interests can be overcome. Uh, I mean, I, I'm a, you know, I mean, whatever. I'm a socialist. I, 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 I think that they can, you know, like I, I think they can be overcome and you know eliminated, yeah. expropriated, whatever. But, uh, but it's it's not a small or or simple undertaking. It's certainly not anything that there's any conceivable scenario by which it's going to happen like this congressional session or like the next congressional session because you need to you know like you're saying you know you need to fundamentally change uh the uh the political you know landscape you know which um you know which i understand you know people get depressed when they hear it you know because it sounds so Mm -hmm. daunting yeah i mean i want to be careful about saying that it can't happen in a given time. I mean, certainly political conditions can change rapidly. And I was I was right. okay. pretty intentional yeah. about saying, you know, it's not necessarily the case that we would have gotten it during a Bernie term. And ultimately, I think we wouldn't have. I do think that there's just too much uh, work still left to be done. Um, but, you know, I mean, the coronavirus has taught us a lot of things, one of which being that political conditions can change very unexpectedly and very suddenly. So, you know, as far as I'm able to see into the future, I think that we're going to need a few years on this, but I can't see into the future. So Sure. Right. I mean, you could have <laughs> dramatic political earthquakes that could happen six months from yeah. now. Uh, and, and that, yeah, I mean, I take the point, right? I mean, that is an important thing to remember, you know, so. It's a caveat, uh, but. Yeah, no, I, but it's an important caveat. You know, it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's one that's, uh, it's one that is, uh, that's for sure, uh, for sure worth making. Uh, but this, uh, this takes us, um, so, uh, so this takes us to the article, uh, that you, uh, that you wrote, uh, that you wrote for the nation. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Forrest, do you have the uh, clip that we we're going to play for this? All right. So, uh, cause, cause this is of course, as, uh, anybody who, uh, who's, uh, watches, uh, watches or listens, uh, to, uh, to the show or others like it, uh, and, uh, you know, wasn't doing something better with their lives a couple months ago is, is, <laughs> uh, was, uh, you know, was, was something that a lot of, um, like a lot of political energy on the left, you know, ended up being spent on this, this question, and a lot of people got very mad at each other about this. And and my hope is that now maybe, you know, enough time has passed that, you know, that, that we can sort of take a breath, you know, and uh and and maybe see see the underlying strategic issues a little bit more clearly than they were in uh, in the heat of the moment. Uh but uh the the Nation magazine uh tried to um you know I think do just that, right? By 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 bringing the question back up you know, these few months later and having, there was a, there were, uh, there was another writer who did the, uh, the other side of the case that, you know, next time 
like the opportunity arises, uh, you know, we should try to force a vote on uh, on Medicare for all. And you did the no. This still this still doesn't make sense. This still isn't the right you know strategic calculation uh, side you know side of it. So uh, let's uh, yeah let's uh, let's watch let's watch the clip from the last time people were talking about this. <laughs> And I'm just I'm just really glad that you came out with it because I think it immediately it sparked a response in people. It immediately caught on, even among people who don't typically necessarily appreciate your point of view, Jimmy. And I think that we shouldn't ignore when 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 something sparks kind of movement energy, you can't always plan for it. You can't always anticipate what's gonna catch on. But when you identify it, I don't think you think you should ignore the power that that moment holds. But this this germ of an idea. I think the aspect of having Nancy Pelosi kind of bent over the proverbial barrel, um, the idea of fighting for Medicare for all in the middle of a pandemic, this energizes people. And I think that we should act on it. Uh, no, no doubt about it. I mean, it's always been mass movements that pressure politicians to do what they're supposed to do. And there's a lot of talk right now. We need to wait for a new chairman of a committee and change a rule. And then we have to get a petition to send to Joe Biden. And while all those things are good ideas, and if in a perfect world, I'd like all of them, uh, we can't get even the bare minimum, something that AOC campaigned on, which is a floor vote on Medicare for all. I've got video after video of her saying over and over, we can't even have a floor vote on Medicare for all. Well, now you can. And so now is the time. As a writer, right? Yes. Um, but I think that the reason why the article was uh, persuasive to the extent that it was, is I think a lot of folks didn't understand the why, the what's the point. They felt as though a lot of the commentary seemed to think that the goal was passing the bill. And so there was a lot of pushback that said, oh, well, what's the point? We're not going to pass it anyway. And somehow we're going to lose political capital in trying, which I, I think that that's a little overstated. I think that, first of all, the people who would be holding Nancy Pelosi hostage here are all all progressive that are beloved in solidly blue districts. No one's no one. AOC is not going anywhere. Ilhan Omar is not going anywhere. You know, Pramila Jayapal is not going anywhere. Right. Um, and additionally, when you compare that relatively slim amount of like rhetorical cost against the potential gain of having a substantive conversation about these issues, that's the piece I think that people were missing. And to those who say, well, why do you think the media is going to play ball? Why do you think they're going to be cooperative? The fact that the media doesn't play ball is the problem. Yeah. The reason we're in a place where there's such a huge, enormous gap between where Americans are and what the media pretends, what the media pretends, or where Americans are and what Democratic con Congress people are willing to support is exactly because the media isn't exposing the extent to which um, these politicians are basically bought, right? And we're not talking about the fact that Jim Clyburn is supporting Joe Biden, and both of them took the most um, pharmaceutical money, Joe Biden obviously in the electoral context, and Jim Clyburn in the context of, of the Senate, of, of all of Congress, actually, you know? So I think that this is a moment where we could really expose the hypocrisy of the Democratic Party. And if you could point me to another better moment, I would be open to saying, hey, let's go with that. But we are in the middle of a pandemic that has just kicked 14 million plus people off of their employer-based health care. You know, 300,000 Americans have died. I can't imagine a better context to force Democrats to reckon with the fact that they're still saying, I don't believe that health care is a human right. All right. So, 
Uh, they like uh, so. What's the case for uh, you know for doing this? That was that was presented uh, there, and and I think that I mean certainly in terms of that you know what happened back then. I mean you think that um, this case would have to be overwhelming you know to to justify what was happening because uh, in practice you know what happened around this uh, was that the most fervent supporters of Medicare for all in uh, in Congress you know people like AOC people like Ilhan Omar. Uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, were uh, were being um, you know demonized and uh, and you know among a certain segment of of the left or the you know online left maybe at least you know people who pay attention to these debates uh, were were being delegitimized were told that there there's there's really no reason to support these people uh, and so you'd think that that if that was going on around this this tactical discussion uh, the the case for the, for doing that tactic would have to be overwhelming. Um, now maybe, you know, now with less of that going on, you know, it, it could just be pretty good, you know, instead of overwhelming. Uh, but uh, what I heard mostly in that clip was that doing this would expose the, uh, the hypocrisy of the democratic party. And it was the, uh, it was the best opportunity to, uh, to do that. So, uh, so what do you make of that argument? I mean, I, I, I've, I've had a lot of issues with this argument. I think that uh, ultimately my issue with it is that it conflates uh, a lot of the reasons that the Democrats are bad, which is I think that, you know, the fact that moneyed interests and capital have such a stranglehold over our political system is why politicians are bad, not the other way around. That's not to excuse politicians. I think that it's very important to hold them accountable, to push them, to use them as tools. Uh, I think that that's, you know, at the center of any leftist ideology when it comes to electoral politics. Uh, But yeah, I, I was very skeptical. First of all, I think that the idea that by exposing Democrats, you advance this movement forward and, you know, you expose them and you change people's minds about them. I think that that's on a very shallow level predicated on Uh, an understanding and level of popularity that I wish Medicare for all had, but it it doesn't. I mean, I think that it's, it's popularity is conditional based on how the question is asked based on how it's framed, uh, et cetera. So the idea that, you know, this is just such an unequivocally unambiguously winning issue that you could leverage support for it against a vote that no one would know about. I think that that was another thing. This would be basically a parliamentary 15 minute no vote. It would get barely, you know, maybe it would get some coverage because yeah, it dust up. Yeah, and, and I should say that was, I thought, one of the strangest parts of that clip that, you know, that like she's brought up that argument and then said, oh, but the fact that the media is like this is the problem. And it, it was very unclear to me, at least, how that was supposed to address that point, you know, that it's like, yes, the, the media is a problem. The media sucks. Everybody in this discussion agrees on that, right? You know, but the yeah. issue is that given that we have the media that sucks, why do you think we'd have this wonderful public debate, you know, because of the, um, you know, because of this, like, 15-minute, you know, parliamentary procedural thing that, you know, maybe I guess if you were watching C-SPAN too, you would see on there? Yeah, I mean, it just wouldn't reach the majority of people. I mean, you know, several months back or a couple of years back, I forget, there was a, you know, procedural floor vote on the Green New Deal. And basically what happened was 
Democrats, even the ones who supported it and were co-sponsors, refused to vote because they thought it was a dirty tactic. And, you know, no one really heard about it either way. Uh, I'm just not convinced that it would have created this show-stopping piece of political theater that people were alluding to, or that watching a vote for it lose in that context would have galvanized support for it rather than the other way around. I mean, I, I think that no part of the premise made sense. And so ultimately what I was getting at in the piece that I wrote for the nation, and it was only, you know, it was 800 words. It was this tiny column that was run alongside uh, the other side. And it was, you know, I was talking to the editor and he said, do you want to take the position that no, we shouldn't push for a floor vote in the future? And I basically said, I tried to put as much nuance in the column as possible, but I, I said, basically my position on this is I'm not opposed to a floor vote per se. I think that power, having, you know, worker power, grassroots power from below is going to be the thing that makes a floor vote effective. And so that's what we need to wait for. You know, when the movement has enough power to really force concessions or to force, you know, punishment, sanctions in some way onto the people that don't vote for it or to pressure them to and really like create this groundswell of pressure, then I think we should do it. You know, I, I think that I think that it will be powerful at that point, but I think that we have to realize where we are and that if we can't exercise that type of power, a procedural tactical power play doesn't look like anything. Yeah, I think I think, I think I mean, it, it, looks, it looks like it losing almost two to one because it is said a little over half the Democratic caucus uh, supports it, which is amazing progress compared to like three years ago. Like that's like it's it's hard to remember how bad things were then, right? You know, but like, yeah. uh, but okay, a little over half the Democratic caucus in a house that's divided almost 50-50 along partisan lines means, uh, you know, means that it's uh, it would. Uh, that okay, all of the Republicans and almost half the Democrats voted against it. That's that's about two to one, uh, and uh, and that's two like how a two to one defeat plays. I mean, yeah, maybe there are circumstances under which that would lead to this groundswell of anger. Uh, it's very hard to believe that those are the circumstances that we're uh, that we're living in uh, right now. And this goes to your point about uh, popularity. You know that they have that you have. Uh, you know, different polls, depending on how you ask the question, say different things. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there are, of course, all those polls where if you sort of work in uh, the, um, you know, like the anti-M for A arguments into the poll, you know, it's like, oh, would you still support it if you knew that you might lose your employer or your health insurance, yeah. uh, that, that it becomes a minority. And of course, there's a sense in which that's like, almost like silly. It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, if you, anytime you uh, ask people and poll, you bring up the arguments against something and not any of the standard responses to it, you know, then that's going to yeah. affect it. But it also does speak to uh, shallowness of support that, you know, that people think, sure, it's a good idea. But then the first time they're reminded mm -hmm. of one of the objections to it, tons of those people uh, stop, uh, stop supporting it. And, uh, and under those circumstances, you know, that's a, that, you know, like you just can't assume that anybody who says, sure, I'd like government health insurance in a poll is going to be so angrily, passionately in favor of it. They'll be outraged that their congressmen uh, vote, you know, voted against it. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the point of organizing, right? Like public education, inoculating them against that onslaught, which I keep saying, like, as soon as this becomes more likely and more plausible, I mean, the amount of pushback is going to become obscene and intense. So like whatever pushback we think we've gotten so far, just like just wait. And that what that takes is a lot of solidarity, a lot of like knocking on doors, a lot of conversations with people. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but I think that you could look at you know, union union campaigns, right? Like part of why it's really hard to get a majority of workers to vote for a union is because management is allowed to completely mislead them, is allowed to smear the concept of campaigns, is allowed to put the fear of God in all of these workers for various reasons. And that a lot of what that takes to combat is, you know, not only solidarity, but making sure that people absolutely understand why it's necessary. They understand why these arguments are disingenuous. They understand why, even if someone is saying, oh, you'll lose your health insurance, this'll happen, that'll happen. Here are the good things that will happen anyway. And the fact is most people aren't at the point where, you know, they're able to either, you know, they don't, they don't know the policy that well, or uh, they don't have like solidaristic political commitments that make them trust the people who are saying this and who are fighting for it and that we need to get to that point. But, you know, it takes a while for us to become more convincing than the three and a half trillion dollars that we're up against. Uh, and I don't care how good your tweets are. I don't care, you know, how morally reductive a point that you can make uh, on TV, much better than I can for what it's worth. I think that, you know, I can concede when a point sounds really good and powerful uh, and that I'm not as good at doing that. But ultimately, it's it's going to take... Uh, building those relationships, fortifying that base. And that that takes time and elbow grease and you can't skip it. And like you've said so many times, there's not one cool magic trick. Right. Uh, Forrest, I cut you off earlier. What you were oh, saying? No, I was just saying, um, I think that there, uh, I don't know, there's kind of like, obviously, number one, like a role-playing element of what um, somebody like Jimmy Dore is doing, where it's kind of just like telling people what they want to hear through just... Um, I don't know, just being like, oh, we could be powerful. We could be powerful. You, like, these people don't want you to have health care. That's why we're not powerful. But Jimmy Dore is never going to, like, roll up his sleeves and go knock on doors for anything. You know what I mean? Like, that part of the equation, I think I think for a lot of people on the left, is completely skipped um, if they don't have an organizing background. But the other thing is that it's kind of framed in that clip as, like, an enlightenment moment, as in, like, they, they act like everyone is a democratic partisan, I guess. And then by exposing that they don't really want to have, like, they don't really want you to have Medicare for all, all of a sudden people like a light bulb goes off in their head and they're like, wow, you know what? These politicians are really corrupt. The thing is, most people think that already. Like, I was going to pull up, um, like, Congress's approval ratings. Like, yeah. their, their approval ratings never go up past 30%. Like, most people don't fucking like Congress. Most people don't like politicians. And like the, the thing isn't that they feel like the thing isn't that normal people that aren't like super engaged in politics don't feel like like they, it's not like they think it's a team sport. It's just they think that they can't change anything. And by exposing democratic hypocrisy, they're just going to say, yeah, of course, of course, they're hypocrites. Like, of course, like, all right, like, keep going about your day. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and, and it's also uh, I, I mean, I think that the other part of the point, you know, like going back to Natalie's point about, you know, the the popularity and uh 
and and whether it's it's secure enough, right? Like I really like that analogy about the union organizing campaign uh, about how uh, like there's a difference between look. I mean, there's a reason why uh, it would be so amazing to to have a car check. You know that like that all you could do is have uh, oh you know like you know, say, tell a worker, Hey, how would you like to have a union? And them say, yeah, sure. You know, they sign a card and that's it. You know, that's, that's the, uh, that's the vote rather than going through this process uh, where uh, they can, you know, get like employer propaganda and fear mongering and then back off because it's much, it's much easier to get people to the point where they say, Oh yeah, sure. I'll have to do a sign this card than it is to get people to the point where even after all the employer propaganda and fear mongering, they'll stick to their guns. Yeah. And, yeah, by by analogy in the uh, in the healthcare case, you know, I mean, like the poll answer is the signing the union card. Uh, the, uh, when- yeah, I also think, I mean, you know, of all the things that drove me crazy about this whole uh, incident, uh, which there are many things, but one thing that drove me crazy was if the idea was exposing Democrats who are opposed to this, then hypothetically, what you were supposed to do with those Democrats was primary them. And we don't have anywhere near enough power to primary that many Democrats at once. Uh, but you know, getting to the point where you could would take organizing and power building, which is what I was talking about in the first place. Like, if yeah, right. we did, if we did force the vote, uh, I, I don't really think anything would have happened. But okay, let's say you know, force the vote gave you a list of Democrats that you could knock on the door and tell people like, oh, this person voted against Medicare for all, which by the way, you can already make that point with like, here's the co-sponsor list of the legislation if you want to. And and I think people should use that, like definitely go up to doors and like make a big thing of that. I think that that's good propaganda. If you think that this would have made slightly better propaganda, okay, fine. What you have is a punchy line in a canvassing strip and you still have to send people to doors. You still have to like fundraise from grassroots activists. You still have to go up against whatever interests are funding their opponent. And we know like the left has had some amazing successes over the past couple of years with primarying centrist Democrats, but we know that it's hard and we know that it takes power and organizing to do. So it just drove me crazy that like, okay, however, however you go, organizing is going to be the answer every time. Yeah. Uh, that uh, like having, yeah, having it something to say while you're at the door is different from having the people to knock on the doors is different from having, you know, the, the money raised to, uh, to do it, you know, et cetera. Like, uh, I mean, it's, again, the situation is vastly better than it was, you know, like unfathomably better than it was in like 2016, you know, or even 2018, you know, the years, the year that there were those initial squad breakthroughs. Uh, but it's not like the, le- you know, this idea, because if you were, primary and anybody who voted no in that symbolic you know floor vote uh which i mean i'm sure a lot of people would skip it anyway but you know so like this idea that oh this will force them to go on record it's like well no actually like nobody forces you to vote on anything you know you can you can skip whatever vote you want but uh so anybody is like really like wants to not be on record that's a very easy way to do that uh but um but even so, right? I mean, what we're talking about is almost half of the Democratic caucus. The idea that the left is in anywhere near the position to simultaneously primary uh, half of the Democratic caucus is just very weird. Uh, and meanwhile, like you're missing, 
like anybody making this argument is missing the other half of it, which you kind of alluded to earlier, which is uh, the uh, the potential uh, downside, uh, which is that like, okay, why is it like even among people who maybe uh, are secure enough in what they think, right. That they're not going to like switch their position in in the poll, like how they would answer the poll question the second it's rephrased, which again, the unfortunate reality is a lot of people who support mm-hmm. Medicare for all. It's such a weak support that like the second that the, the question is asked slightly differently, they're, they're, they're against it. Uh, but even people who aren't like that, I think there are lots of people who aren't like that, who aren't mad that um, about the Democrats, not, you know, not doing like uh, not doing Medicare for all. And they're not mad about it because it just doesn't sound like something that's really going to happen to them. Like, like it's, uh, you know, people like there's lots of stuff that people would love it if the government did, but they're not worked up about it because they never expected it to happen in the first place. Uh, and yeah, and, and it, and it seems, and to the extent that you think that that's like the big problem, like, like, why is it that we haven't had, okay, so we're in a pandemic, but just, you know, obviously that creates a problem for doing any sort of political activity outside of the house, but nevertheless, despite being in a pandemic last summer, we had giant, uh, police brutality protests. Uh, so the question is, okay, given some of these poll numbers, the ones that sound better, uh, why don't we have giant protests about all those people in the poll, you know, given that so many people lost their employer health insurance during the pandemic, why don't we have giant, giant protests about Medicare for all? And I mean, I guess if you want to, you can blame, you know, some leaders or politicians just being treacherous and not wanting it enough. But I mean, it seems like realistically, you didn't have that because, uh, because most people only get mad that things aren't happening when they think that they might happen. And if that's the case, um, then having a two to one defeat in a, uh, in a, in a, in a floor vote to the extent that anybody notices that happens, it seems like it would just, it would just deepen the problem. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a few ways to understand why you don't see massive, uh, protest mobilizing for healthcare in the same way that you do for other issues. Um, you know, for, for one thing, there is there is some healthcare mobilization. I mean, there I've definitely been to several Medicare for All rallies. I'm not sure if you have. I bet that a lot of audience members have too, uh, especially in, um, I mean, California uh, still has a pretty active state level fight, New York, um, possibly a couple of other states too uh, have visible action. So, you know, there's some of it. Um, there's also sometimes some action around uh, hospital closures. So Hanneman in Philadelphia, uh, maybe about two years ago, was a safety net hospital that closed. And uh, the Bernie campaign actually went there and you know did a solidaristic protest against that closure. Um, I, so I think ultimately we don't see as much of it. Um, and I think that's a few reasons. Um, one... Uh, there was also, I'm sorry, there was also like the uh, protests against the um, the repeal and replace bills, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in defense of Medicaid, um, which, you know, uh, the ADAPT group doing um, sit-ins at the uh, direct actions at Capitol. So that's, that's something. Um, so I think a few things are at play. One, around 15 million people 
lost their employer-sponsored insurance during the pandemic. It's still unclear and like researchers are still debating um, how many people from that cohort became uninsured. Uh, a lot of them were absorbed by Medicaid temporarily, um, you know, potentially some switched on to spouses insurance, things like that. So, uh, you know, it's it's a little, I, I still think that that's still bad. Like that sort of churn is what it's called. Switching from one plan to another can still be really difficult for people. They can still wind up with terrible bills. They can still lose continuity of care. So I'm not saying that it's not awful. I don't think that we should have that in our system at all. But, you know, it, it changes uh, if, if you're thinking like, you know, 15 million people all of a sudden losing insurance, when you think about, oh my gosh, that sounds like such a catastrophe, it wasn't necessarily experienced that way to the degree that that sounds. Um, but I also just think the choke points in the healthcare system are not clear. So that's the point I was, I was trying to make from the get-go. I think that, you know, when you think about uh, a worker's place in a business, um, the way that a boss needs labor to make profit and the power that the workers wield as a result is very clear, right? Um, it can be hard to exercise that power, but but we understand that. Uh, we have you know a way of dissecting that. We have a way of talking about that. Patients don't have that kind of power. Um, you know, ultimately we all need healthcare. And so I think that a lot of Amer Medicare for all organizing is kind of geared toward uh, helping us think about ourselves and each other as, you know, if you're not a patient now you'll have to be and sort of thinking about it as like a solidaristic public good. Um, but like patients can't strike. Patients can't exercise patient. I mean, they can't, you know, you could start to talk about what they can do as consumers, but I think that that, you know, <laughs> is problematic yeah. because we're trying not to be consumers, right? Like we're trying to uh, have a much different relationship with the system uh, than that would suggest. Um, and I think that, you know, there are people, you know, nurses being the most prominent example of a healthcare worker who is uh, very committed to Medicare for all. Um, and that, you know, there have been some nurse strikes where they try to raise raise awareness of Medicare for all. But, um, you know, there's there's never been like mass labor action in that way. Um, you know, things like unless the PRO Act gets passed, sympathy strikes are illegal. So I think that, you know, the contours of what it takes to use direct action to get Medicare for all is maybe less obvious for healthcare than it might be for, you know, some, some other issue. So I, I don't think that that's insurmountable. I do think that like the political contours are tricky. Yeah. Yeah. No, fair, uh, you know, fair enough. And, and again, you know, goes, goes back to uh, to the point that this is um, you know that this is something that's a uh, that's that's a really difficult uh, long-haul struggle which is is not to, is not said to discourage anybody from from like uh, from being engaged in that struggle I mean just the opposite right you know so like that that uh, shows that that we need to uh, you know to do this. Uh, because, because it is so important to achieve and it's going to be so hard, you know? So, I mean, that, mm -hmm. that, that's a reason to, uh, that is actually a reason to put more of your energy, uh, into it because it's, it's going to, uh, it's going to take uh, more to do, but, uh, being burnt out, you know, by like the sort of spectacle of thinking that, you know, that there's going to, uh, to be a quick fix, you know, mm -hmm. is probably the opposite of 
the kind of mindset that people need in order to engage in that long-term uh, organizing effort. Uh, so I, I do want to, uh, I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to switch, uh, uh, switch gears, uh, while we've still got you and see if we're not going to get to everything that we want to get to. Uh, but I at least wanted to, uh, to do the, uh, vaccine distribution part, uh, Forrest, do you have that? Yeah. Um, so a big part of Biden's, I guess we hit like a year of the, since the lockdown happened, um, you know, like last year. So Biden gave his big uh, his big COVID address, and um, I kind of wanted to start with 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 this on it because um, like the point that we're at with uh, with vaccines is a lot better, obviously, than we were at Trump. And I know you wrote kind of an article about um, vaccine distribution at the beginning of Biden's um, term. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Did you do the uh, this the screen share? I don't see it. We're also working with governors and mayors in red states and blue states, states to set up and support nearly six hundred federally supported vaccination centers that administers hundreds of thousands of shots per day. You can drive up to a stadium or a large parking lot, get your shot, never leave your car, and drive home in less than an hour. We've been sending vaccines to hundreds of community health centers all across America, located in underserved areas. And we've been deploying, and we will deploy more mobile vehicles and pop-up clinics to meet you where you live so those who are least able to get the vaccine are able to get it. We continue to work on making at-home testing available. And we've been focused on serving people in the hardest hit communities of this pandemic, black, Latino, Native American, and rural communities. So what does all this add up to? When I took office 50 days ago, only 8% of Americans after months, only 8% of those over the age of 65 had gotten their first vaccination. Today, that number is 65%. Just 14% of Americans over the age of 75, 50 50 days ago, had gotten their first shot. Today, that number is well over 70%. When I came into office, you may recall, I said a goal that many of you said was kind of way over the top. I said I intended to get 100 million shots in people's arms in my first 100 days in office. Tonight, I can say we're not only going to meet that goal, we're going to beat that goal. Because we've actually on track to reach this goal of 100 million shots in arms on my 60th day in office. No other country in the world has done this. None. I want to talk about the next steps we're thinking about. First, tonight. I'm announcing that I will direct all states, tribes, and territories to make all adults, people 18 and over, eligible to be vaccinated no later than May 1. Let me say that again. All adult Americans will be eligible to get a vaccine no later than May 1. That's much earlier than expected. 
Let me be clear. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have that shot immediately, but it means you'll be able to get in line beginning May 1. Every adult will be eligible to get their shot. And to do this, we're going to go from a million shots a day that I promised in December, before I was sworn in, to maintaining, beating our current pace of 2 million shots a day, outpacing the rest of the world. Secondly, at the time when every adult is eligible in May, we will launch with our partners new tools to make it easier for you to find the vaccine and where to get the shot, including a new website that will help you first find the place to get vaccinated and the one nearest you. No more searching day and night for an appointment for you and your loved ones. Thirdly, with the passage of the American Rescue Plan, and I thank again the House and Senate for passing it, and my announcement last month of a plan to vaccinate teachers and school staff, including bus drivers, we can accelerate massive nationwide effort to reopen our schools safely and meet my goal that I stated at the same time, about 100 million shots, of opening a majority of K through eight schools in my first 100 days in office. This is going to be the number one priority of my new Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Fourth, in the coming weeks, we will issue further guidance on what you can and cannot do once fully vaccinated to lessen the confusion, to keep people safe, and encourage more people to get vaccinated. All right. Uh, so, uh, Natalie, will tell us about your uh, vaccine distribution uh, article and where things are at with this right now? Sure. Uh, yeah. So for the nation, um, I guess it was a month or two ago at this point, I did like a long, deep piece into uh, vaccine distribution, kind of zoomed out, look at all of the issues with it. And one thing that I think has been... Um, overlooked. And I think that the biggest root explanation for a lot of problems, particularly earlier on, was the fact that um, public health departments were begging for federal money to run their vaccine distribution programs since, I mean, early summer, when it started to be clear that some of these vaccines were uh, pretty promising. Uh, and they didn't get that funding approved until the second COVID relief bill at the end of December. And then it took another month or so before most of the departments actually got that money, uh, which of course was, you know, over two months or around two months into vaccine distribution. It had already started. Uh, and that's too, you know, better, better late than never. But that basically means um, that for the largest max vaccination program in American history, which, you know, we've obviously done a lot of vaccinations and there are things that everyone gets vaccinated for, uh, but they don't happen all at once, right? Like you don't, there's never been a time when all 300 million people in a country have to be vaccinated at once. And there's no real mechanism for that. Uh, you know, they had to devise a lot of uh, protocols and systems that didn't exist and not knowing whether they'd get the money, they couldn't hire new people. If you'll also remember, you know, a lot of public health departments are seriously cash strapped, uh, particularly, you know, a lot of them 
lost a ton of funding in the austerity after uh, the 2008 crash and in a lot of cases haven't been uh, replenished. Uh, and so, you know, you had these public health departments that basically had to coordinate on a dime. And I think that a lot of them tried to do that really effectively. I talked to, you know, a ton of people trying to run their vaccination programs in local county X and they were, you know, developing volunteer programs and they were, you know, using Eventbrite websites to try to coordinate signups, blah, blah, blah. But the reason that it was so hard, there were so many kerfuffles is because this money came way too late and they basically had to design or improvise systems in the meantime. And if you have to improvise systems without any money, that basically means that you're going to prioritize passive mechanisms, right? Like if you're using Eventbrite software, you're basically going to say, okay, we'll set up a, a thing here, you come to us. And I think it's pretty obvious who's best able to navigate those systems, who's the one who's able to, you know, be available midday to game the system, to keep logging on, to figure out where the appointments are, to, you know, go to the one that opens up wherever they can. And, you know, they were going to prioritize richer, whiter people. And that's, you know, what happened. Uh, I think that places that did the best are places that were able to exercise a certain amount of flexibility in a targeted way. So, you know, the place that I wrote about in that piece was a town called Central Falls, Rhode Island, which had the highest rate of infection in the state of Rhode Island. And, you know, I think on par with some some pretty hard hit areas. It's a, you know, the only majority, uh, the only majority POC city uh, in the country or in the state and had the highest rates of poverty. And basically they trained uh, locals. So people from the local community to be health ambassadors to, you know, earlier on in the pandemic to, you know, talk to people about masking and get people enrolled in clinical trials and, you know, talk to them about uh, infection mitigation protocol. And they were able to get mask usage rates up, et cetera. And then they were also being used to help people sign up to actually, you know, go to public housing to, you know, vaccinate entire buildings. Uh, they would also sit outside the Dollar Tree and City Hall, et cetera, and that they ended up being very successful because they were sending out healthcare workers to uh, these hardest hit areas and these marginalized communities. And you know, more more places have started taking up that model, especially now that funding is available and they have been able to hire more people to do that work. Um, you know, ultimately getting people vaccinated and distributing vaccines, you need some, I mean, especially with the, you know, the first two, the Pfizer and the Moderna, where you have to have this really intense cold chain technology because it had to be kept so cold. Um, you know, now, now with Johnson and Johnson, the actual distribution is a little easier. There are still hiccups here and there, but you know, the, the situation is a lot smoother than it was. And, uh, you know, I, I think that people still don't totally get and pundits don't seem to get when they said like, well, why is this so hard? You know, what, what's going on? I, I don't like, like a, <laughs> vaccinating an entire country has never been done, uh, not in this context. And it's really, really hard. 
I, th I think it would have been hard no matter what. And there were obviously some pretty significant roadblocks. Biden seems to be doing a, a better job with that messaging too. Um, talking mm -hmm. about kind of mobilizing people to be vaccinators. Um, I, that's not something I really heard Trump ever talk about necessarily at all. Or like, you know what I mean? Like a lot, like it's interesting that he, he seems to be catching on to that messaging pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, it is like, this is one of the weirdest things uh, about the COVID crisis, because if you imagine like the disaster movie version of COVID, like <laughs> the, uh, the one, uh, you know, like, like how like the Hollywood movie would have gone uh, in the last 20 minutes when people were finally getting vaccinated, uh, it wouldn't be this like, you know, different rules in every state and people going to get vaccinated at CVS and, you know, and all this stuff, it would be like this, well, you know, line of like, you know, national guard stuff, you know, set up to, uh, to vaccinate everybody. That's what, you know, that's what you would be, be primed to, uh, to expect. To be fair, the Aaron Sorkin version of it might actually uh, entirely involve people arguing about <laughs> where, to, where to best hand out the, vaccinations. The, the Biden show of the rule for how to how to do it. <laughs> people doing walk and talks, talking about how you know exactly which groups should be prioritized. Yeah, but I mean, like, but I, I think I mean I'm glad that it's happening more. But I mean, the distinction Natalie's making there is really important, you know, because I mean, certainly, you know, anecdotally, like. Um, you know, I have my, you know, I got my first shot, uh, you know, finally uh, last uh, uh, last week. And, you know, but and granted, I live out in the middle of nowhere, you know, so like it wouldn't. But like, you know, I, I had to drive like about half an hour to, you know, to the place, you know, the place where I got it. Mm -hmm. uh, people I know who wouldn't necessarily qualify for higher risk groups who uh, who've gotten it. You know, I tend to hear these stories and know, like, this is not to say anything bad about anybody who, you know, my position is that anybody who has a chance of getting a shot right now should race to take it, you know, but, uh, but like, all, people will tell me these stories about, oh, I got a call from such and such, and they said there were some shots at this place that, you know, they couldn't find anybody to get, and all I can think whenever I hear this stuff is, oh, you couldn't find anybody? Like, like how many, like, you know... What they mean is not enough people came in of their own steam to do it. Like, I, I really want to know what would happen if, like, how many Walmarts are in between this person who's driving into this place where they couldn't find anybody and the uh, and the vaccination site, you know, like, walk into the Walmart and say, hey, is anybody here? You know, not gotten a, not, not gotten a shot and once one, and I'll bet you you could find somebody to take all of those doses. But for the most part, that's not how it's being done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. Every every country is doing it a little bit differently. And I think that part of why in the US you have so many situations like that uh, is, I mean, partially because of our piecemeal healthcare system that, you know, we don't have a system like in the NHS, everyone is enrolled with a primary healthcare provider and that that's kind of like a natural landing pad and that the person has a list of their patients. Like I, I talked to for that piece, I, you know, interviewed um, people who worked for public health departments and like, they don't have a list of like, here are the 75 plus year olds who live in this county. Like that doesn't like that. There's no way to like find 
that information and use it. There's no way to like reach out to those people. So like without those pre-existing institutional relationships, which by the way, I think is another reason like why it's easy to understand why, you know, childhood immunizations work so much more smoothly, not just that it's fewer people at a time than had to be vaccinated now, but you know, when you're born, you have an institutional tie to the place where you were born, you know, the pediatrician, uh, the most, most babies are born in hospitals and, you know, they're, they're keyed in there and then, you know, through school. So, you know, people, people kind of become less tethered to those systems as they get older and become adults. So, you know, for a variety of reasons, and just because, you know, there never was like a streamlined planning process, Biden brought up the idea of, you know, one website, uh, exercise, like, designed at the federal level that everyone can use, which is like a classic example of something that would have been super convenient to have um, if the, the COVID funding had freed up months before. Um, you know, that that's one thing that I think states and local health departments really had to bend over backwards trying to figure out. Um, and that, you know, in, in most cases they didn't. And people keep coming for shots. So it's kind of resolved itself in this strange piecemeal way. But yeah, I mean, the the way that it got resolved is that there are a lot of people just kind of doing their own thing. There's like piecemeal processes, people driving two hours to get something. There have also been more, you know, vaccination teams dispatched to hard hit areas, um, which, you know, I think is really what was necessary from the get go and what's already done in other contexts. You know, I mean, tuberculosis workers do that now. Um, they, you know, go to where patients are to deliver medication and observe dosages and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, better, I mean, better late a, than never. <laughs> yeah, having a big federal website like that, though, is also something that can go wrong pretty fast, as we saw with like the Obamacare website when they first launched it, um, crashing over and over again. Like, I, I don't know, I think that it like, it's, it's so interesting to see systems fail during a crisis, because, you know, it's not like one system fails, and then they, they fix it. And then like another, like, it's like, all systems fail at once. And having somebody like mm -hmm. Trump is actively kind of fighting against um, releasing any federal funding, like you really see everything fall apart that quickly. But then at the same yeah. time, like somebody like Biden coming in and just kind of doing basic things that would help out a lot, like common sense things, they get way too much praise for that, I feel like. But I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, having, like, having the federal website, you know, assuming that it's it's not, you know, whatever, right? But, you know, making that assumption uh, is is this definitely a step in the right direction. I mean, yeah. it's a good thing. There should be one centralized place you can look up where you can get a vaccine. But, uh, but also uh, having the only way for people to get vaccines is that they look it up and they find time to go there just, I mean, doesn't seem, uh, I mean, certainly doesn't seem like the most efficient, you know, way to, uh, to do it. And, uh, definitely and not to vaccinate a whole country. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's also <laughs> definitely not the most egalitarian way to do it for all the reasons yeah. that Natalie was talking about, you know, there, there are like, mm -hmm. you know, who's, you know, just, just having, you know, having it be a matter of, you know, the person who got a, uh, was sent home with an employer laptop uh, a year ago, uh, you know, and is doing their white collar job from home is a lot more likely to get on that website and find, you know, where they can be vaccinated, you mm -hmm. know, than, than some who's, uh, 
you know, who's who's working all day and, you know, coming home and worrying about, you know, who's uh, who's taking care of the kids, uh, you know, et cetera. I mean, like this, I mean, it does seem like uh, if you're going to equalize that at all and just, again, get as many people vaccinated as quickly as humanly possible, uh, you know, you really do want to be sending, you know, sending the vaccine to the arms and not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another thing I've said about this before, uh, I think that all of that stuff makes sense. And when it comes to, you know, Trump and his handling of the coronavirus, I feel like I've generally been pretty resistant to arguments that Trump is an anomalous uh, president. I think that, you know, the better way to understand him is that he's the logical endpoint of several years worth of processes in the Republican Party, et cetera. I do think that, uh, certain aspects of the coronavirus, Trump was worse than any other Republican would have been. Chief among them is messaging, um, which sounds like a little, you know, usually when people talk about Trump's civility and Trump's style, it's like, okay, whatever, like what's really different between that and like, you know, the more civil genteel stylings of George W. Bush. But I think with, you know, helming a country during a pandemic, messaging is really important. Um, hydroxychloroquine, for example, would never have happened under any other president uh, except Trump. And, you know, yeah. Biden's, Rob, Biden's doing a better... Rob wouldn't have half-jokingly floated, injected into bleach. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know... Clean him out. Clean him out. Just get the virus out. <laughs> yeah. So from that sense, I think, like, you know, Biden, Biden is a pretty powerful upgrade. Um, the holding the funding hostage, which I do think was at the crux of why the beginning of the vaccine rollout was such a, a clusterfuck. I think that that would have happened not only under another Republican, but given the structure of votes under that president, probably would have happened under President Hillary Clinton, too. I mean, I, I don't think that the Republicans would have wanted to free that up. So, you know, in that sense, the beginning was going to be a problem. And you're right that, like, you know, federal websites would have been hard. But, like, having a a website that was the same everywhere that was streamlined and then freeing up local health officials to do other things and to build up their distribution program in other ways, like that would have been pretty clearly preferable and that you'd have to have a bunch of strategies at once. But, you know, ultimately credit where credit's due, the vaccine distribution really is going way better now. Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. I mean, like th those are, I mean, the two big things that that I was hoping that we get uh, from um you know, from from Biden replacing you know Trump, uh, you know, as as somebody who's who's who was always pretty cynical about like somebody who was always pretty pessimistic, you know, about like the prospects for Biden, you know, changing his stripes, uh, uh, were that well, okay, one uh, that that he'd stop appoint, you know, that he wouldn't appoint hardcore union busters to the NLRB. That's kind of a uh, um, that's not an issue that most people track, but I think they should. Uh, and uh, and two, uh, that the that the the COVID uh, response, you know, uh, wouldn't be quite as like ludicrously, you know, inept and negligent, you know. Which which again, I I I agree with you. I don't even think it would have been under another Republican uh, yeah. because it was just from the perspective of you know, like keeping the country running, you know, for the sake of capital, you know, like like I I, I think like. Uh, any like reasonably you know competent reactionary politician you know would have would have done better than uh, than than Trump did. I mean, it's like you you you'd be hard pressed to find like 
a a worse person to be there at that particular moment you know that like okay yeah. we have an unprecedented catastrophe who's going to be president right now it's it's the uh it's it's like the 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 weird uh it's like the weird racist from celebrity apprentice you know who's talking <laughs> consciousness you know that's the guy who's gonna be you know that's the guy who's gonna be at the helm at that moment yeah and and it makes i mean you know as far as like a centrist bellwether goes i guess you know this is the time that it like that really does matter having somebody like that um in power you know i mean if you're not going to get any genuine leftist that wants to change anything like at the very least like as i guess scientific and popular opinion kind of has one consensus like the consensus guy it's like all right like it, things are going to improve because like that guy is just going to go with whatever, you know what I mean? Like whatever the, the current logic of the crisis is. Um, yeah. I'll also say this, will this will be cheesy, but I do think it's worth pointing out. Um, it was striking to me. I think it was like Biden's first week in office that he had like a memorial for uh, victims of the coronavirus and like a moment of silence. And it struck me that like how crazy it was that there was never a moment like that of public mourning from Trump. And like, as much as, you know, those things are political theater, et cetera, but it feels like, like during a, during a pandemic of this magnitude, it, like, I think that was meaningful uh, and that that was important. And it is just startling when you're like, oh, holy shit. Like our former president just presided over the deadliest pandemic in everyone's life, anyone's lifetime and like never acknowledged the dead. Yeah. Right. Like, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I won't say it's at the worst end of the spectrum. No, of, no, it's just surprising. Of, 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 of possible responses, like the very worst end of the spectrum of public responses is Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who was like giving, you know, press conferences about how like if you were a real man, you wouldn't be so worried about getting the virus, you know, like that's, you know, like, so it could be even worse, but, you know, uh, but yeah, the, the Trump response was, uh was was pretty close uh, to uh, to the worst end of uh, how somebody in that position uh, could have uh, could have handled it. But uh, before uh, before we let Natalie go, uh, Forrest, you had a uh, Fauci clip. Yeah, so this is um, it came up a couple of days ago, and Fauci was uh, talking to I think people on the on the pharma side of the healthcare um, spectrum at like some conference, and he's talking about how. Um, he was talking about how he doesn't uh, agree with price controls on the COVID vaccine. And I just, I, I thought it would be interesting to talk about the limits of capitalism and healthcare. All right. Um, while he's pulling that up, uh, we have a, uh, we have a super chat from uh, Darius Hennen. Uh, who asks, uh, would Congress uh, feel more compelled to act on M4A if states uh, started their own programs first and were, uh, were successful? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think that there are a lot of legal challenges with uh, state-level single-payer that uh, try to be ameliorated. Ro Khanna has introduced a bill that would basically do things like reallocate Medicare funding that goes to a certain state into a state single payer pool. So it kind of tries to uh, smooth over and fix some of those legal complications. Right now, there is no mechanism to do that. Um, so it's unclear how easy it would be, et cetera. Um, you know, states also can't command the same 
bargaining power that the federal government can. There are a lot of states, you know, like New York, where a lot of their providers are used by people from out of state and vice versa. So there would be some kinks and some challenges, and it wouldn't be able to deliver the same uh, promise as a federal level single payer program. But uh, I do think that it's where some of the political conditions are more amenable right now, and that there are some states where there's, you know, a years long organizing campaign already in place, and that those are a great thing to key into. And those bills give you a reason to knock on doors as opposed to just like, you know, knocking on doors to talk about a hypothetical bill at the national level, which can be a little harder. I think that those conversations potentially get easier at the uh, local or state level. Um, and, you know, it is worth noting that that is how the Canadian uh, program got one. Saskatchewan uh, was the first province to have it. And then it was eventually rolled out over the course of a few more decades. Um, I prefer the national route, but I think that we should be, you know, pushing, pushing any model we can. And there's not, as far as I understand, there's not like a single state level single payer supporter alive who doesn't want national level course, single payer right. too. Um, so, you know, the idea of like what's better state or national is, you know, knock on wood, ultimately um, just a, a, a tactical question. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you are in a state with a robust single payer movement, definitely get keyed into it. It's a great way to organize. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense to me, like, even though, I mean, obviously everything you said about like the, the drawbacks of, um, you know, of state, like the things that would, that you could deliver with, with national single payer that, you know, that you can't with any kind of state level program, mm -hmm. Uh, is is definitely you know is definitely right and of course you know and for sure right the goal is you know is is national uh, single payer uh, but I kind of like the idea like where it is politically possible where there are like you know like like if there are states where uh, there's enough momentum that that could actually you know conceivably happen at a state level I kind of like the idea of pursuing that just because I do tend to think that a big part of the problem right now with mobilizing people around single payer is that even so many people who like the idea, like have that kind of, you know, bone deep capitalist realism. It just doesn't sound like something that would really happen. And yeah. so if you, if you can like point to like, Oh yeah. in, in California, uh, they have, you know, Cali care or whatever, you know, that like everybody, everybody who lives there gets automatically like that. Um, like that just makes it, that would be something that would make it seem more real. It's like, oh yeah, sure. They have that in California. Why couldn't we have that nationally? Yeah. I think, I think one problem, you know, industry, if it sees the writing on the wall in that way would absolutely jump on a state level campaign and would find it much easier to topple than a national level campaign. Um, so, you know, the, the influx of opposition would be even more of a threat at the state level. Right. So I think if that if it gets to that point, um, Medicare for all supporters in other states will have to, you know, really extend solidarity and think of it as their fight too, even if they're not in the state in question. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would it would be great to see bills, you know, advance further. And they've you know they've they've passed at least one chamber in New York and California over the past couple of years. So that is a big deal. And you know, I'd love to see more of that. Fair enough. All right, let's do the Fauci clip. There's obviously a lot of discussion about access and affordability of any future vaccine 
or therapeutic interventions for COVID. And I know our companies are working closely with the US government and others around the world to make sure that a vaccine can be made broadly available. You've commented before that in your experience during past public health emergencies, the private sector has been a good partner and not priced vaccines in a way that had made them unaffordable. Yet there are some who want to impose price controls on the products before they're developed. Would such efforts help or hurt your ability to partner with the private sector in bringing new vaccines to market? So this is what's called get Tony in trouble question. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the fun ones, aren't they? <laughs> uh, yeah, those are the real fun for you. But then when we're done, it's not so much fun for me. No, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience over the years dealing with pharmaceutical companies in which we're trying to develop an intervention. And the one thing that is clear is that if you try to enforce things on a company that has multiple different opportunities to do different things, they'll walk away. They will. They will walk away. Uh, so as much as you'd like to see fair pricing, I think to force something on a company as opposed to work with them to try and get an understanding, particularly if the federal government helps them in the development of a product for a public health issue, that they will in good faith make it available to those groups, countries, nations that really can't afford it very well. You don't want them to be, I mean, obviously it's a profit-driven industry. You people know that a heck of a lot more than I do because I don't deal in that space. I just deal with the people who deal in that, in that space. And when you're dealing with something that has to have some kind of an economic return, you can't just do something and just give it away. You've got to have some degree of profit. And that has to be taken into consideration. As long as it isn't in such an outrageous way that it completely makes something out of the realm of the people who really need it. And often, I mean, I'm, I feel like I'm preaching. I, I'm sorry, but it, I'm telling you things you already know very well. That many of these outbreaks disproportionately affect regions of the world that cannot afford a very expensive intervention. So that's the reason why we've got to work with each other in good faith, that we're going to help. But I, I don't see ever, I've never seen a successful attempt at doing controls. And people ask, and the Congress asks, well, why don't you just say that you have, but, you know, there's a reasonable pricing clause that you might remember from way back in some laws that were passed. The big question is, what is a reasonable price? That was something that was very difficult in agreeing upon. So I have the thoughts. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, he's not wrong, but the answer isn't, as a result, we have to let pharma do what it wants. The answer is public manufacture of pharmaceutical goods. Right. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the way forward. I've been advocating that for a while. It seems pretty straightforward to me. I mean, he's right. Like they are for-profit industries. You can't expect them to give these things away for free. They depend on private, et cetera. And that's why they shouldn't be producing these goods. I mean, that's why we should build an institution that doesn't require them. Yeah. That's kind of where I, um, I don't know, wanted to hear the conversation go in the sense of like, you know, just the systemic failing of capitalism to deal with a crisis like this. And, you know, like 
having having for-profit industries um i guess in charge of the the response to a crisis like this just seems like a massive failure on like on a moral scale but also just like on a on a distribution scale like you know i know ben's written about that um for jacobin before <laughs> yeah no for sure uh and i mean this is something that like uh lee phillips and uh mikhail Rozwerski talk about in uh people's republic of walmart that have it, uh yeah yeah i always recommend that uh that having um you know, for-profit, you know, pharmaceutical companies, you know, having, you know, control over uh, the direction of uh, mm -hmm. research uh, is, um, you know, potentially catastrophic, you know, I mean, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the sort of race to, uh, you know, to have the antibiotics, you know, that, uh, that, that catch up to uh, the, um, you know, the evolution of the organisms, you know, they're, they're trying to, uh, they're trying to counter, you know, which like is something that could, that could, you know, sooner than we'd like to think, I mean, like could really have devastating mm -hmm. effects because if you, uh, if you don't have workable antibiotics, you know, I mean, then like you're, you're sort of back to uh, Victorian medicine and, you know, lopping off limbs. Uh, and, um, and the reason, you know, and the reason for that is that that's just not where the profit, you know, incentives, uh, you know, line, you know, line up with, you know, like it's, it's, uh, and, or, or you could even talk, think about the COVID vaccine, you know, which of course it's remarkable how quickly that we got it anyway. Although as Abdul pointed out in the first half, you know, that's uh, public R and D anyway, you know, as, as far as most of the funding goes. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, like, there's also a question about why uh, there wasn't massive research uh, money being put into coronaviruses after SARS and MERS, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, which, which were both like near misses for the kind of thing, you know, that, that is happening mm -hmm. right now, you know, globally with, with, with COVID. And I mean, you don't have to say yeah. anything conspiratorial about that. It's just like straightforwardly looking ahead to things that might or might not be a big problem in five or 10 years. There's literally it, videos of, of scientists being like, you know, the next thing is going to be some form of coronavirus, like just so, you know, everyone is aware, like that's the next pandemic that's going to hit. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I want to so I, I said public manufacture, I think, is the ultimate solution to this problem. Um, it's not as if there is nothing you can do up to that point. Um, you yeah. know, I mean, other other countries can and do more effectively regulate their pharmaceutical prices better than we do. Um, you know, there's a there's a different like regulating pharmaceutical prices without changing the insurance system won't be as helpful to patients. If you have like a $6,000 deductible, you know, a certain drug costing $2,000 instead of 4,000 isn't going to be a particular relief. You know, I mean, 2,000 or 4,000 is lower than the deductible. So that actually would make a difference. But, you know, if someone has a $6,000 deductible and you're able to bring it down, otherwise it, it doesn't necessarily help. But all of that said, um, yeah, I mean, I think that public manufacture or, you know, a lot more public control of these companies, I think that that's an underrated argument is, you know, not only does it bring drug prices down, but it brings in under democratic control or some semblance of it, what drugs get funded, what research gets funded. And now that's completely profit driven. So, you know, that's why like no one, no one was doing low level R&D for coronaviruses that didn't exist yet or coronaviruses that hadn't killed 
that many people. I mean, no one was going to put that money into it. And instead, they're going to allocate money. You know, I mean, like the classic cliche example is like, you know, a cure for male pattern baldness. Uh, they'll always be funneling money into, um, you know, different, different, like, are you saying that's not important? <laughs> I mean, you know, put in some money, sure. But, you know, I, I like, like that profit, profit dictated uh, research allocation is a big deal. And that you also have a lot of development along the lines of, you know, they have a super popular drug. And so then they, you know, spend money either doing patent tomfoolery and litigating uh, with other companies or shallowly changing some drug so that you can, you know, keep your patent for however long. So a lot of those things are, you know, completely inefficient and ultimately um, keep us from getting the type of R&D and the type of drugs that we would want. And and it's it's a really, oh, sorry. Benefit. Oh, I was just gonna say, I mean, it's worth contrasting it with where, like, spheres where we do have public planning. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, my, uh, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a leftist. My least, you know, my least favorite, you know, part of, uh, of of public spending is military spending. But it is also significant if you're just thinking about it structurally. That, uh, like, when the Pentagon does funding requests, you know, it's it's about. Uh, it's premised on like all sorts of fanciful scenarios about things that might or might not happen. In the future. Uh, yeah. And we don't like, that's not how, that's not how pharmaceutical, you know, like if you had public pharmaceutical manufacturing, like I think that's the sort of thing that shows you that you could have, Hey, you know, here are some scientists say that this, this is some danger that might be coming down the pike in a few years. We should we be, could all be bald. We could all be bald. That's the next pandemic. No. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't mean to pick on baldness. I'm sorry. No, I, no I'm just. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, um, I would see out here, and here I was just trying to remember the name of the uh, baldness drugs that uh, that Homer Simpson takes. I don't um, know. I, I also think it's the easiest. I mean, it's a really easy argument to make. The you know, uh, pu- like public policy and like a, a more public system of um, you know, like like how how they research like what drugs are going to get funded because you know it's public money going into that. So it's like your tax dollars going into what they're choosing to research and then pharmaceutical companies kind of getting to decide that. I I think it's a really easy argument to make, like, you know, like democratizing it, like we like your money goes into researching it. Don't you want to have some say in what they research? Well, yeah. And, you know, obviously, like the the money that the public money that goes into research, like that specific money is earmarked. But, you know, I mean a company having an R&D budget and they also get federal allocations obviously you know you can only separate separate those dollars so much um yeah. but yeah like it, it would be nice you know healthcare ultimately to bring all the conversations together um healthcare is so obviously a valuable public good and treating it like one would certainly mean that we should have democratic control over uh what sort of drugs get researched and what get made and that that should be based on need rather than profit uh and that that's true for the healthcare system writ large and we're pretty far from that point now and we should do whatever we can to get closer to it yeah um i, I think it also just makes the you know including the the pharmaceutical they, uh, companies in these responses just kind of makes things more complicated as we're seeing right now um like because then all of a sudden they have to kind of go into like like making sure everything's perfect for the pharmaceutical companies that they're getting like better deals on on like you know on on the on the pandemic response like 
really just making sure that they're comfortable with it. And then, you know, that's time and money that could be spent on, on actually solving the pandemic. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that last, that last point about bringing in all aspects of uh, the health system under a collective democratic control is, uh, is probably the ideal endpoint to the conversation. Uh, uh, thanks for coming on, Natalie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. All right. That was Natalie Schur uh, talking uh, about uh, strategy for, uh, for achieving uh, Medicare for all and ultimately, you know, more radical horizons, you know, beyond that, like uh, public uh, manufacturing of, uh, of pharmaceuticals. I should say, by the way, that uh, that I did find it. Uh, so uh, the uh, the the baldness uh, the baldness drug that Homer Simpson takes is called uh, Demoxinil. Uh, that's uh, that was a that was a really early uh, early episode where he uh, he he takes the Demoxinil and that uh, and so he has this like beautiful bushy hair now and so he's he's promoted uh, from the factory floor and he becomes an executive and his his life is going great until the uh, company stops paying for it. And, uh, and he's once again bald and they think he's worthless. <laughs> yeah. I, I vaguely, I vaguely remember that episode. <laughs> um, Fair. Fair enough. Uh, let's, uh, let's watch the, so if, uh, if anybody has any last super chat questions, we'll take those at the very end and, uh, and plug again, the things that are coming up. Uh, but uh, but right now, uh, let's watch the preview for uh, the episode that is dropping uh, for patrons on Thursday. Uh, just as a reminder, uh, if you want uh, to uh, watch or listen to uh, that whole episode and every other Thursday episode and not wait like a couple months until we unlock it, uh, then go to uh, patreon.com slash Ben Burgess uh, and, uh, and become a patron of give them an argument, uh, as well as the uh, weekly bonus episodes. Uh, you also get access to the discord server. You, uh, you get uh, monthly uh, discord uh, office hours, group voice chats. Uh, you get, uh, uh, you get early access to uh, the monthly um, uh, Sopranos recap bonus episodes uh, with uh, big wise and Mike Racine and Nando Vila. Uh, and you also uh, are are getting, I think, you know, we're gonna coming up to the point where we're gonna have to decide what the second one of these is gonna be. We did the first one last month with uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, but you get uh, monthly uh, Discord movie nights. Uh, so uh, lots of, you know, lots and lots of treats as as gratitude for the solidarity for helping us keep the show going and and Nomadland would be a Nomadland would be an interesting one to do as the. I guess as the Oscars come up and that gets talked mm -hmm. about a lot more. <laughs> yeah, no, that could be I'm good. Putting in my, I'm putting in my vote early. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, no, that that could be good. You know, have uh, have Jason Miles back on and, uh, and yeah, no, it's, that's that's definitely worth thinking about. All right, let's watch the preview. The uh, the British monarchy uh, has uh, has been uh, has been in the news a bit lately uh, because uh, because of the uh, the. Megan and uh, and Harry uh, Oprah interview, uh, and uh, the people at uh, the National Review are very agitated about the thought 
that uh, people might, in you know, people might be having bad thoughts about the monarchy or uh, want to end it. So this is the this is the article, uh, an American defense of Britain's constitutional monarchy, uh, by Joseph uh, Lacant. Lacante, I'm, I'm not quite sure how to say Joseph's last name. Uh, but uh, this is uh, this is in the National Review, and this is not unique to the National Review, by the way. I saw that I think the Heritage Foundation was was doing an event about how the um, uh, the British monarchy was. I, I swear I'm not making this up. A cornerstone of Western democracy. Um, well, so, Leconte is at the Heritage Foundation, I believe. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So yeah, he's, he's actually the presenters there. Okay, so Lacante might, as uh, the author of the National Review article, might also have been the uh, uh, the the organizer of that event. You know, so he, he it might just be basically this one guy uh, who's who's really worked up about defense uh, defending the British monarchy. I think it's absolutely hilarious and comical in so many ways that uh, the National Review. The bastion of all things, uh, you know, classic Americana, 1776, and uh, the great, uh, you know, shining city on the hill, William F. Buckley, are now uh, <laughs> celebrating the monarchy that uh, the American founders rebelled against that was also uh, oppressive. Yeah, well, that's the, I mean, that, that is like the, like the strangest and funniest thing about this, uh, because if you're going to claim to be all about American patriotism and American values and all this stuff, then uh, there, there could be literally nothing more American than hating the British monarchy. That is the origin story uh, of the United States uh, as a uh, as a country, which actually is something. So I guess started right at the beginning of the article, uh, Lacante says. Um, uh, you know, historians may puzzle for many years over why a rambling, emotional interview between members of the British royal family and an American media tycoon come billionaire became a rallying cry to destroy the British monarchy. Now, uh, as somebody who would very much like to destroy the British monarchy, I don't think there should be monarchies. Uh, I, I wish he was right. I, I think he's considerably overstating the case about how much how many people are reacting to it by talking about uh, abolishing the monarchy. Uh, Gene, you know more people in the UK, you might have a different perspective on this. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say this: like, there is a growing, I would say, apathetic republicanism in Britain. People aren't super motivated by the abolition of the monarchy. It's not like a, a cause celeb. But I think, you know, younger generations are less enthralled by the kind of mystique and magic that the British monarchy uh, uh, represents. And, you know, for the gen for my generation who grew up in the 1990s, and I think for even people a little bit older, we grew up with the scandals, the, the, the sort of public uh, shaming, the Princess Diana affair, all this stuff. So, you know, like... The monarchy is very much a kind of tabloid issue for people of my generation. Of course, there are older people, more conservatively oriented people are very attracted to the institution, if not the um, you know individuals as, as part of the monarchy. Uh, but I think one thing that's happening more than this interview is the fact that the queen is aging. The queen has been has presided over uh, the British uh, political system since the 1950s. And she's getting old, 
and we're looking forward towards a change of God. Now, the Queen's success, you know, people, even relatively, you know, centrist people who are not usually taken by monarchy, you know, have a kind of affection towards the Queen, largely because she has stayed out of politics. She's been largely quiet. She hasn't been particularly active. But, you know, there has been rumblings about succession, you know, and what's going to happen when, uh, you know, Prince, Ch if Prince Charles becomes a king. He's way more outspoken. And so there's the, the monarchy is heading towards crisis, uh, and that crisis will come to a head uh, when Queen Elizabeth dies. Uh, but I don't think this interview, I think this is a bit of hysteria, and I think there's a kind of uh, underlying, uh, maybe a little bit of bigotry perhaps. It, it, well, that's what I was going to ask about, uh, what you guys thought about, because I think that even if their description of other people's motivations is wrong, you know, that it, it could be revealing uh, that, you know, because you ask, okay, why is it that people who, who normally uh, are, you know, aroused by the mention of 1776, uh, you know, would, would be this defensive about the, the British monarchy? As, as, and let as me ask. Out. And, and the idea that it doesn't seem terribly implausible to me that for, you know, reasons you can speculate about, uh, you know, like like they might just be uh, irritated by by Meghan Markle, you know, speaking ill of the uh, of the royal family, and so I, I don't know how much you know racism is in the backdrop of this or not, but I mean, it is it is well, hard not to wonder. I think it's uh, it's uh, it's not. I mean, I don't un, uh, underappreciate the role of racism, but what I think it's more than just about racism. It's about protecting the institution of the British monarchy and the institutions of Anglo-American empire and liberal democracy and all of that comes along from a burgeoning challenge uh, in the contemporary era, whether you want to attribute it to wokeness or not, where uh, empire, the British empire, particularly uh, white supremacy, uh, et cetera, so on and so forth, are being challenged in ways in which the traditional sacrosanct narrative of these nation states, empires, and countries that are used to kind of propagandize towards patriotism are being challenged. And uh, this is not something you only see in Britain. You see this in France right now where they have, like they're talking about the Islamo-Gauche, they're talking about how there's this, the, the invasion of post-colonial studies and critical race theory into France is dem is uh, destabilizing the uh, belief in French universalism, and all of this exists in a larger context, right? Like we cannot we cannot forget that Europe and you know the liberal Western world is in a crisis of a kind of. Uh, you know, Manichaean battle between reactionary nationalism and the traditional kind of centrist neoliberal order with the rise of, you know, you know, uh, the UKIP, Nigel Farage, Brexit situation in England. You have Marine Le Pen in France. You have, uh, you know, uh, Front National. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Golden Dawn. You have all of these kind of reactionary constellations that have been developing really since the early uh, millennium in Europe, and more so particularly after the 2008 crash, 
compounded with phenomena you have, particularly in Great Britain, for example, the Windrush scandal, where you had uh, Caribbean immigrants in Great Britain who had been there for 50 years or so on and so forth were being deported. And these people were actually British citizens. And also the fact that former British colonies like Barbados uh, are actually trying to say we, we're, we're done with uh, being part of the British Commonwealth and the British Crown. So I, I think that what we're realizing, okay, is that there's an existential kind of angst amongst uh, these institutions of empire uh, as, you know, to use the, the, the term, the subaltern, if you will, are challenging the, uh, the, the moral uh, certitude of, their, of their, their hegemonic control over the Western world. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think you can definitely uh, see uh, see some of those uh, those anxieties here. Um, that and you know that like the French case that you pointed out is really funny to me because uh, as you have you know uh, Macron and you know French politicians who were raising the alarms about like the the threat you know of of critical theory uh, to uh, uh, to French uh, French civilization, they're they're blaming it on as being an American import, which is ex- of course exactly the opposite of what American reactionaries say. You know, they, yeah, they blame it as on you know at, they they yeah, call well, it French import. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So again, uh, that episode uh, drops uh, for uh, for patrons on uh, on thursday um you know you can get that full episode every other episode by uh becoming uh becoming a patron patreon.com slash ben burgess uh as well as all those other good things that we were talking about earlier uh i'm not sure i think somebody uh well anyway the oscars might be a good reason to uh to do for the next movie night to um uh do uh, no bad land uh, somebody else, I think, was also bringing up in the chat. Um, well, I think the I think they were talking about the uh, the uh, movie Best of Enemies from several years ago, which was about the uh, William F. Buckley uh, Gore Fidel uh, debates, which uh, which would you know would definitely be one that would be of interest to people, you know, yeah. who'd be who'd be potentially watching on that. So we should probably do that one some month. Uh, but uh, in any case, I want to. Um, just uh, just run through one more time uh, the uh, the stuff that is uh, that is coming up uh, and uh, and then call it a night. So we have um, on uh, on Wednesday we're not doing uh, the uh, the regular Wednesday movie live stream this week. Uh, the next one that's planned is uh, is about uh, Paul Verhoeven's uh, you know satirical science fiction. Um, uh, you know, war movie uh, Starship Troopers, uh, which uh, we are going to bump that back a week. Uh, we're uh, we're going to do that on the thirty uh, first um, with uh, uh, Danny Bessner and Micah Utrecht uh, and uh, and Ryan Lake, uh, and uh, and also our graphic designer Jay Andrew World is going to join us for that. Uh, but uh, instead of that, uh, so that'll be on the thirty first. But this Wednesday. Uh, so uh, two days from now, so the 24th, 
Uh, we're going to be doing a special stream with uh, Bronco Markedic, uh, the author of Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. And Bronco I'm, I'm, did I'm excited for that one because I really I enjoyed I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to read the entirety of the book, but like I, I read the first few chapters um, in doing research for like segments we've done. So I'm really excited to talk to him about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, Bronco got back to me and uh, he messaged me uh, earlier in the episode and confirmed for that. So uh, so we'll, we'll be doing our stream on uh, the, um, you know, the hole that George W. Bush uh, pushed, uh, punched in the Middle East, uh, officially turning 18. Uh, so it can it can go off and fight uh, in America's endless wars in, uh, in the Middle East. A hilarious, like not not conspiracy theory, but like it's funny that all these articles are coming out about like how George Bush is um is is like oh like he's a different kind of Republican. Still, they're pushing that because of Trump. You know what I mean? Like like there was a Chris Caliza thing where he was like uh, Bush is unrecognizable in today's Republican Party, and he published it in 2021. Which there's no fucking way that you need to keep laundering Bush after Trump has been. You know what I mean? Like kicked out anyway. Not that you did in the first place, but like their argument for that was like Trump is a unique evil, whatever. But it's well, funny to I mean, be like, like, look, I mean, uh, Trump is uh, maybe the worst flowering so far of some seeds of evil that have been growing for a long time yeah. in some ways, right? Not in others, but in some ways. Uh, but if you're going to talk, certainly, um, and you know, whatever. Look, there are, if we could go look in that, you know, Rick and Morty, you know, device that lets you watch TV from alternate dimensions, I'm sure there are tons of them where, uh, you know, where Trump, uh, you know, some late night tweet storm, you know, caused like a nuclear exchange or something. And so Trump did well, you know, more, uh, more damage to the world. But um, in terms of the actual damage that they did, you know, Bush was much worse. And, oh, yeah. And there's that there's, you know, Chomsky wrote about this a lot, but, you know, uh, Bush basically going to the UN and saying, like, fuck you, we don't need you, which the UN is not a very good safeguard for world peace. It's not a very safeguard in terms of equity. But even those standards, Bush kind of completely destroyed, um, you know, because I, I don't play it very much or I don't really believe like, in a, you know, global standing as like a concept, because obviously we're the worst imperialist country in the history of the world since at least those giant empires, you know, in like the, you know, centuries ago like uh, but i think that that does do lasting damage to the point where um it, you know it, it places us where we are today like you know it's it's like a, con a continued flouting of uh, of global uh standards and the global conversation continually from bush till now you know what i no, mean like I, no exactly and look also if we're going to talk about all the damage that bush did i mean the obvious things are uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the beginning of the uh, drone program, the uh, the Patriot Act, uh, and uh, you know setting up you know the the global you know network of off the books prisons you know where you could torture people, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, and you know a lots of maybe less um, blood curdlingly exciting stuff. Uh, that that did all all kinds of damage, you know, domestically and in terms of, um, you know, things uh, things like his, you know, his war on you know teachers unions and other stuff. But uh, continually uh, cutting down the social safety net, as I mean, as all Republican presidents would do. But yeah, no, no, no for sure. But also, if we're going to talk about the damage that George W. Bush did to the world, part of that damage is creating the conditions in which Donald Trump 
could be president. I don't think that you get Trump without Bush because uh, if without Bush responding to 9-11, you know, by elevating this, what should have been a criminal matter uh, to this like pseudo Cold War kind of global military, you know, thing that was framed as a clash of civilizations, uh, you know, and, and all the fear mongering that went along with it. I don't think you would get somebody uh, like Trump who was um, who's a huge part of what he was running on in 2016 was fear mongering about Muslims. Uh, you know, I mean, fear mongering about Muslims while managing to criticize endless war, which uh, is honestly kind of an impressive tightrope walk. <laughs> it is like, it is. like Muslims, Muslims are coming for you. Muslims are coming for you. We're all going to die. But going to war with uh with you know majority Muslim countries, bad idea. And it's like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, exactly. but like I, yeah, I yeah, think so so, yeah, so, yeah. Trump, so Trump was able to both exploit the fear the Bush had built up mm-hmm. and at least pretend to be against some of the worst things that Bush did. Uh so in multiple ways, you know, uh without Bush, you know, you probably couldn't have had Trump. Uh all of which is just to say that I mean, like if you had I mean, look, I'm willing to entertain the idea that there might be other presidents, you know, who uh, who who did even worse in the long term. I think you could make a case for Rutherford B. Hayes or whatever. But like, you know, within the last hundred years, my God, it's, you know, it's, it's just no contest. It's George W. Bush. Yeah. Well, and, and I also think that you know, the biggest difference between Bush and Trump isn't policy. The biggest difference is the unraveling of the idea that, you know, the Republican party, like they're, they're, they're despots. They're like, whatever, but they're, but they're civil about it. You know what I mean? Like that's the, unra- the unraveling of that civil politics, I think is the biggest difference between Bush and Trump. Trump could say whatever the fuck he wanted because the Republican party realized, you know, in, in 2016, like nobody gives a fuck. Like even Bush had to pretend like, Oh, like, you know, I'm, I'm not racist. I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an offensive guy. I'm a regular guy. I just believe in these, like, you know, these uh, compassionate conservative pol- like policies, which are not compassionate ever. But you know what I mean? Like, at least he was pretending that. The big difference is that the Republican Party realized they could stop pretending that. They could stop pretending to be compassionate in any fucking way, shape or form. And but like, but it's funny that for somebody like Chris Caliza at CNN, where uh, politics are all aesthetic, like, then, then it is kind of like, oh, well, Bush is unrecognizable in this Republican Party because the only thing he's paying attention to are those civility politics. So I don't know. I just thought that was a funny article. Um, <laughs> oh, you're muted. Hold on. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, for sure. I mean, like, I, I think that, um, I mean, certainly all of the... Um, all of the never Trump Republicans and, uh, and, um, and quite a few of the kind of liberals, you know, who, who look back fondly on George W. Bush, you know, like what they, what they object to most about Trump isn't what he did. Uh, it's, it's that he was uncouth while he did it, you know? So obviously fuck that. But, um, in any case, um, this uh, lots of uh, lots of good stuff coming up uh, that we've already mentioned. Uh, do you want to just say again uh, for uh, the next regular episode next Monday? Uh, we are. I'm going to be talking to uh, R.J. Esco, who people might remember from uh, we watched in the Sunday night debate lives uh, breakdown series. We watched his debate with Matt Taibbi uh, about Herbert Marcuse. Uh, so since S goes into the philosophy stuff, we're going to be talking about this book, Why Not Socialism uh, by G.A. Cohen, 
Uh, and then uh, Nando uh, will be on in the second half, which is always a blast. Uh, looking forward uh, to all of that. Thank you, everybody who uh, stuck with us uh, for uh, for this tonight. Uh, you know, for uh, for the three hours or so of this. Yeah, so much for not doing a three-hour episode. I know, I know, right? We were talking about <laughs> ended earlier tonight, um, but uh, but uh, much appreciated. Uh, love you guys. By far the best audience in left media. Uh, so um, you know, it's uh, it's always uh, it's always a pleasure. Uh, we'll still see people back here uh, on Wednesday for uh, the Iraq War uh, Turns 18 live stream. Left is best. <laughs>